You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since 1977. Here we are. We're back. We're recording in back-to-back weeks for the first time in many years. Beyond love, beyond death, beyond <laughs> last-minute curveballs thrown at the recording schedule. This is the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. I am Large William. Across the border from me is my good pal, my partner, Sammy. Yes, I'm here. The samurai. <laughs> On the phone. Yeah, phone recording. We, we couldn't quite get the uh, the back-to-back Sundays uh, recorded. It was uh, lightning struck both of us. Um, so here we are. So uh, this episode, we should say, is brought to us by Diabolic DVD, a longtime friend of the show, longtime sponsor of the show. Um, they've been kind enough to allow us to, for those that don't know, uh, we alternate picks one month sammy picks one month i pick this month was sammy picks uh, and between yes. sammy searches sammy made a few picks i did and uh ooh, we got a we got a siren man you better get out of the building no, no, <laughs> i'm running my vacuum cleaner as we podcast i was gonna say it's like uh sammy's getting pumped up he's coming up to the atom bomb music from wrestling well, from a few to, years ago like Spaceballs, I'm getting ready to switch it to do my podcasting from suck to blow. That's right. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so, Sammy, you programmed this week's show. Uh, two icons of the GGTMC in some ways that have been underrepresented. Two macho, hairy icons. Uh, what, yeah. what, what did you pick? Uh, we were going to be doing uh, Zardoz. 1974, directed by John Borman, uh, with macho Sean Connery in very little clothing. Uh, sure, he was bitching about being cold in the Scottish Highlands, wherever he was. Ireland, yeah. <laughs> and then Anthropophagus from 1980, directed by Joe D'Amato, or D'Amato, or however you want to say it. We always just say Joe D'Amato, it's just easier that way. That's right. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's an infamous film. These Both of these films... One of them is more infamous, infamous than the other, but they've been covered on many podcasts, and so I'd always wanted to talk about them, but, you know, 
felt like we needed to take a little time, so we waited 359 episodes <laughs> to do it in seven years. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we've given it room to breathe now. <laughs> Big time, man. Big time. We aired out the uh, the nappy, as the British would say, and uh, time for us to wear the red nappy. Yeah, and we should both say one, uh, one of these is on uh, 88 Films Blue uh from uh the uk so these are both uh region locked so you got to be region free to get the blues at least right now anyway and zardoz is uh an arrow release our show sponsor but the uk set that's right so that's right absolutely man so uh we will get into those imagine say in case i forget can you imagine a world uh where george eastman Played the Zed role in the Italian remake of Zardoz. Yeah, <laughs> it would somehow yeah. be more insane. Yeah, 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 and more and and, and much sleazier. <laughs> yes, some, somehow it would be. <laughs> oh man, somehow it would be much sleazier, and somehow there would be <laughs> even more naked people in plastic. I think Eastman would find a way to meld his pelt uh, headpiece from Iron Master with the. Uh, <laughs> The uh, sort of loinclothy diaper piece. So. Yeah, he's had a colorful career when it comes to movie costumes, to say the least. Mm-hmm. He's worn some of the great ones, uh, but <laughs> he, unfortunately, he, not, he never wore the the Zardoz nappy. Oh yeah, sadly, <laughs> we're all worse off for it. Yes, yes, we all we all lose in that scenario. Yeah, we sure do. Um, what uh, what have you been watching this week, my friend? Oh, not much. Mostly documentaries. Uh, mostly that's what I've been cranking out. Watched uh, the Lego Brickumentary, which I was in a move for something breezy. It looked breezy, so I watched it. Uh, I was glad I did. It was actually touching in some ways, you know, dealing with autism and uh, some of those things. Some of those, you know, some of the more difficult things that children deal with growing up, and how Lego helps. And also, you know, adults uh, playing with Lego, not playing with Lego, but using them in creative ways. Um. Interesting, you know, Lego can be. If you step on them in the middle of the night, they can be the bane of your existence. But if they, yeah. uh, but if uh, you know, for therapeutic reasons or create creative reasons, they can be quite wonderful. So, and my son's really into them right now, so I kind of wanted to look at it and just kind of get an idea see if he might want to watch that at some point in time. So, see all the how many different types of Legos there are and how many different types of things you can do with them and stuff. And, it gets into some pretty crazy stuff. It's breezy, but you know, it, it's it, you could do worse. It's you know, it's not uh, cram jam material, but it's <laughs> it's you know, it's it's fun. Uh, watch Best of Enemies with uh, that has uh, Gore Vidal and William Buckley, ultra conservative William Buckley, and I guess ultra libertarian Gore Vidal. I was going to say, yeah, quite the libertarian. Yeah, so they they went through some debates on television. Uh, back in the day, and uh, it got a little feisty and a little odd, and they both disliked each other, even to their grave. They they both they didn't have anything positive to say about the other. So uh, it, it's good. Um, it's on uh, Netflix, isn't it, right? Uh, yes, it is. Did it you is. say that? I don't know if you would said no, that. I didn't say that. No, I thought I was it was. Gonna... I was going to watch it last week. Yeah, no, it's good. It's, it's, a, it's a good one. I, I don't know if it's great, but it's certainly good. And then uh, earlier tonight I watched one called uh, Orion, The Man Who Would Be King. This is about a gentleman named uh, Jimmy Ellis who was one of these guys. You know, there's been Elvis imitators over the years. There still is. Uh, 
obviously he's probably one of the most impersonated uh, pop singers or uh, popular cultural icons of all time. You know, his voice, and uh, you, you hear a lot of people do it, and it, it's similar. Jimmy Ellis was probably the closest I ever heard to being dead on. Seriously, is that good, eh? Yeah, yeah no, he was really good. He was he was really good. and uh, But there were still differences, obviously there is, because, you know, human beings are going to have slight differences no matter what. But he was as close as I can remember. Anyway, at one point he ended up donning this mask, becoming Orion. He couldn't really make it. He sounded so much like Elvis. He was trying to make it as a legitimate musician, but... He sounded so much like Elvis, everything he's saying that, you know, everybody's told him, you know, you sound like Elvis, you know, he's, you know, I can't really sell you because, you know, and then Elvis died. And then two years later, this character named Orion pops up with a mask, like a Lone Ranger mask and a glitter suits and everything else. And sounds like horror hound. Yeah. People, yeah. People started, you know, falling in love with the idea that Elvis was, you know, it became that whole thing, that myth that Elvis is still alive because nobody could believe, you know, Elvis died at 42. I'm 42 years old. So Elvis Jeez, died. Jeez, man. Yeah. He was 42 when he died, Fuck. and uh, nobody wanted to accept that, not only because of his uh, youth, I believe, but because of his kind of the magnitude of his popularity, oh, right? Man. So, and uh, and it didn't help that Orion named an album "Reborn." Yeah, and uh, <laughs> you know, the, the whole thing about the Orion oh, thing. The interesting thing about the documentary is none of it was Jimmy Ellis's idea. He just kind of bought in. Sun Records had him. Yeah. Oh, did they really? And, oh, uh, motherfuckers. What they tried to do was they tried to, you know, they milked it. What it is is they, Elvis died. The guy that owned Sun Records that bought it from Sam Phillips would kind of re-release like Jerry Lee Lewis uh, duets with, not with putting Elvis or Jimmy Ellis's name on there, but Jimmy Ellis would go back and dub his voice in there. So they would say these, these lost Elvis recordings. And then, uh, then they would put his albums out and they would, you know, he, he came from, uh, a town that didn't exist called Ribbonsville, Tennessee, and all this. All they just made up this whole thing is what they did, and uh, they milked it. And I think for about two or three years, I think they put seven albums out in two years. I think for like two or three years, they made a pretty good penny at it too. Oh, this sounds uh, because, unbelievably fascinating. Yeah, because people wanted to buy into it. They wanted to buy into the idea. Of they course, want people still want to buy into the idea that Elvis is still alive. Yeah, you know, it's the Eddie and the Cruisers thing. You know, it's yeah. all that stuff. People want to don't want to ever believe that they're pop stars. Or the heroes, their idols, or whatever they are. They don't really believe they're mortal, but they're just people like anybody else. So people started buying into it, and unfortunately for Jimmy, he he didn't uh, he didn't want to do it anymore. He he, he wanted to be known as Jimmy Ellis, and so he kind of let it go before you know he he probably should have. He probably should have milked it a little bit longer and got a little bit more financially stable. And then he just kind of struggled the rest of his career and stuff. And it's just a it's just a really kind of a sad tale of how the music industry will. They'll chew you up and spit you out. If they got an angle, like there's a lady that says in the thing, it doesn't matter if you're talented. The music has never been about talent. Popular music is not about talent at all. Popular music is about, do you have a little bit of talent and can we sell it? If we can sell it, then that's what we're going to do. It's not about how talented you are because I know tons of people that I've met that are more talented than guitar players I see on TV and, and in great bands and all that stuff. But if you ain't got nothing to sell, nobody's going to look at you. That's so true. you got to have a look, you got to have a, you know, and everybody should know that now. I mean, all that, that's all come clear within the age of American Idol and the voice and all these type of things. It's not about what you actually can do. It's about what they can actually do with you. Mm-hmm. So that, that's kind of the world. Sadly, that's the world that the Jimmy Ellis kind of came from, but it chewed him up and spit him out. And it'll, obviously it'll chew up, and spit out everybody else too. You know, whoever's popular right now, it'll eventually chew them up and spit them out. It's funny you say that um, because 
the other week I was not the other week the other day I was driving home from somewhere. I was in my truck and I listen to a lot of Christmas music this time of year. And some very slight Britney Spears uh, Christmas song came on from you know many years ago. When Britney Spears came out, we were in high school or at college or just after college. Um, and I remember that, I mean, now it's become kind of legendary, This that meltdown she had where she was in the tattoo parlor and she shaved her head bald. She just, she completely, completely lost it. When it happened, I remember being in my mid to early 20s, mid 20s, but I was, Thinking, man, what a train wreck, and I cannot look away. I wanted to buy a T-shirt with her on it with that that picture, you know, that picture for kind of snarling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, yeah, with the umbrella in hand. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and what a difference time makes. Because when I thought about that, when this song was playing, it made me really sad to think this girl's been in that Disney machine her whole life, and this is a young woman who lost her fucking mind for a moment in time, and. It was there for everyone to see on display, and it was yeah. a very tragic uh, thing in my eyes. It's just funny how time can change perspective. Yeah, and of course she she's like uh, like Elvis, you know, she lost some of her pop popularity, so now she's playing in Vegas too, which is where you end up when you, you know, you don't really have like worldwide superstardom anymore. You kind of end up in Vegas. Yeah, you do the casino circuit. That's become a lucrative uh, thing for bands like Journey and, yeah. and all these certain comedians. It's it's really uh... – now, I'm looking at this other – I'd never heard of this, Orion. Is, was this on Instant as well? Uh, no, it wasn't. It was on iTunes. I knew you were on... going to break my heart and say it wasn't on Instant. <laughs> no. This sounds amazing. And <laughs> I'm looking at another album cover, and it says the, – the title of the album is – and it's got Jimmy in this like ruffly shirt like the king would wear – Looks, you know, the, the red kind of Lone Ranger glitter mask. Mm-hmm. Uh, hands on his hips. The title of the album, not to perpetuate anything, of course, is Some Think He Might Be King Elvis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my when, God. Once they started releasing albums of Orion, they were really trying to sell the Elvis angle that it might be Elvis back from the dead or Elvis never died. But once, uh, at one point before, right, two years before, literally... Just two years before, when Elvis was still around, uh, bloated and sick-looking and all that kind of stuff, uh, Jimmy Ellis, I think, released a song saying, I don't want to be like Elvis. No way. <laughs> and uh, just two years later, you know, he's selling out uh, concert halls, uh, basically doing an Elvis impersonation. But, you know, at that point, he was 32. And when you've been tra- chasing a dream for, you know, I guess 20 years or whatever, how long you've been chasing it, uh, you know, he would do anything he could because he just loved to perform so much. So, you know, somebody gave him a golden ticket and he took it and then he regretted it. So, you know, it, I'm always fascinated by that because it turns into the whole crossroads tale. It turns into the whole, you know, what would you do in that scenario? You know, somebody says, hey, you can make $300,000 a year. That's a lot of money, but it's not, you know, it's not mag, it's not superstar money, right? But let's say you can make $300,000 a year for the next 10 years of your life if you pretend to be somebody you're not. It sounds, and it's been your dream. Yeah. Right? This yeah, isn't just like a business thing. It's kind of been your dream yeah. to become a performer, right? Yeah. But some, but to do that, you have to give up your personal identity. Nothing will ever be credited to you. You won't get any royalties to the albums. You'll get you'll get money from the concerts, but you'll get no royalties from the albums. What a peculiar existence that is. 
Yeah, yeah. And sadly, that that still goes on. I mean, that still goes on more than people would like to uh, to think. So, yeah, it, it's a it's a bizarre story. Would you say this is top 30 material? Uh, just outside that? I think mileage may vary for some. I think uh, a lot of it's archive material and stuff and interviews with Jimmy and stuff. He's not around anymore, and I don't want to give away anything in case you haven't don't know anything about the story of Jimmy Ellis. Um, so I don't want to spoiler it or anything. Of course, if you look him up, you'll they'll, they'll, I mean, if you look up the Wikipedia page or anything else, you'll find out. Was this eventually. the BBC one? Was it? Uh, it? It is financed by British Money. Yes. This sounds endlessly fascinating to me. Yeah, it is fascinating. I don't know if it's top thirty, but it, you know, <clears> it might be. <throat> I mean, if if you're fascinated by the idea, I definitely think you should check it out. I am, um, and he does sound a lot like Elvis. I mean, uh, yeah, well, I guess about as close as I've I've ever heard. Really, I mean, he sounds, he sounds, uh, especially like a certain era Elvis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not like a young Elvis. I mean, young Elvis sounded totally different than the, the Elvis that kind of came along uh, in the late '60s to mid '70s. So, that's where he, he sounds more like that. Amazing. Amazing. And he gets into some theories about you know he was adopted so. You know, he's got a God-given voice. Maybe he was, you know, maybe he was related somehow. Separated to, at birth? Yeah, no, well, not so much that, but they do do a profile picture one night of him and one time of him and uh, uh, Vernon Presley. Yeah. Uh, Elvis's dad. And they do look incredibly alike. So <laughs> there's this theory that uh, he may have been one of uh, Vernon's illegitimate kids because Vernon uh, evidently had quite a few. And would you say this is better than I Am Thor? No, 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 no. Thor, the thing about John Michael Thor is he's on a planet and in a world of his own, <laughs> and he's still, is, he's, he's still trying. This is John Michael Thor's world. We're just living in yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's still trying, man. He's still, he won't give up the ghost, man. He just will not give it I up. I cannot wait to see that. Yeah, but, of course, like I said, Jimmy's not around anymore, so maybe he would still be trying, too, because, I mean, uh, I think he was only 53 when he passed away, so, yeah, I guess he'd still be around. Uh, he'd be an old man now, but. Uh, Thor's a pretty old man. He's still trying. <laughs> still pumping the iron, man. Yeah, still wearing the mascara. Don't blame him. It's incredible. <laughs> it's it's a good film though. It's a good film. It's uh, it's just one of those peculiar little kind of. I've always like enjoyed stories that kind of go off the beaten path. You know, like I always like those little stories about those, you know, bizarre actors or bizarre performers or something that, you know, they have that one moment and you wonder what happened and where'd they go and. People that cling to a dream, even as that dream has been flushed down the toilet, they don't let go. Yeah, they won't let it's go. It's fascinating. No, I agree. There is something fun. There's a commitment and a fact. I think there's, there's something kind of romantic and sweet about that, sometimes in a bizarre way. But I think there is something very compelling about that. Because most of us don't play chicken with fate. To the well, line. that's the I mean, thing. I mean, yeah. You know. I mean, that's the thing. Like I said, you know. If your favorite thing in the world to do is to eat pudding, and somebody says shaky pudding, hey, yeah, yeah, it was well, definitely shaky pudding. <laughs> but uh, you can get that job if you're good enough. But I'm talking about like if you just want to sit around and eat chocolate pudding, not chocolate shaky pudding, yeah, <laughs> uh, just chocolate pudding. And somebody says, I'll pay you ninety thousand dollars a year to eat pudding every day for the next ten years. Ooh. Do you do you do you sell your soul to make that money, or do you eat the pudding? I don't know, man. That's uh, <laughs> that's a lot of pudding, and I love pudding. I love pudding too, but <laughs> that's a lot of greenbacks too for eating pudding. That's all you got to do. Ten years, man. You got to push that pudding for ten years. That's 
That's no joke, only, man. Only one flavor, though. I'm only throwing out chocolate only. So by the time those 10 years are old, over, oh, man. you're probably done on chocolate for the rest of your life if you don't. <laughs> oh, you're totally I, I would, done. You're totally done in less yeah. than a year. Yeah, yeah. How, yeah, do, that, I, I that's, could, how do you not be? I, I know yeah. just from drinking protein shakes, like, you can't. People oh, wow, I got a cookies and cream flavor protein shake. <laughs> Guess what, but, man? By day 12, you're done. Yeah, well, I'll occasionally buy a jar of peanut butter, and I'll eat peanut butter sandwiches or peanut butter and jelly oh, yeah. sandwiches for like two or three days in a row. Yeah. And then I won't eat them again for six months. <laughs> I'll tell you what, peanut butter is one of my great loves of my life alongside my wife. And uh, I ate, and this is no joke, I, I ate peanut butter and jam sandwiches. Uh, I felt like the guy in the Kiru. Uh, I ate <laughs> peanut butter and jam sandwiches for breakfast with a yogurt and a banana every day at work for about four years. Yeah. Now, mind you, that was four days a week. So the other three days I would eat eggs or cereal or something. But I was like clockwork, man. But putting for every day for 10, day, 10 years, man, that's a commitment. That is. <laughs> Jeez. Committing, committed to that pudding. Yeah, man. <laughs> that's right. I'm making a promise to the pudding. But it is it is good. It is worth a watch. I don't, I don't, I don't know if it'll make top 30 list. It might make top 30 list. I don't know if it'll make mine. Um, I did like it quite a bit, but I've seen quite a few other docs I've liked quite a bit more. But if you are fascinated by the uh, the kind of fringe celebrities and the the kind of wacky craziness that is uh, Holly Weird or the music industry, it's definitely worth a look. Did you ever see that documentary about those um, impersonators that work uh, the Hollywood Strip there? No, I haven't, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Or I, the find that, I, I find that the idea of that as a living just to be insane desperate hungry a little bit sad yeah yeah this uh, it's just insane to me but but you know if you're a listener of the show and you do impersonations for money and stuff i mean i'm more power to you I just, oh I hey could not, if you can get a get, get a yeah some dope i just could not do it yeah absolutely very cool that's it that's it i didn't watch much else man i've been fucking busy as hell eating pudding man yeah eating lots of pudding <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, so what have I watched? Uh, let's see. You've been digging into that Criterion there, baby. Yeah, I've been rolling with the Criterion, man. I watched one called Fear. Did I, did I speak about this one? Um, I don't think I did. I don't, I don't recall. Rossellini Jam with his wife, Bergman. Um, it feels more like a hitchcocky domestic kind of twist and turn film mm -hmm. uh it's it's quite good a departure for him bergman's an actress that i really didn't give any ratings to until i i really saw her um especially in his work and it's fascinating to me that she tends to feature in films where a marriage is dissolving or there's infidelity or, you know what i mean it's yeah it's very peculiar to me that he works it out that way just like dario worked it out with daria getting brutally murdered in his films yeah so and his daughter getting brutally naked in his films it's a very <laughs> yeah very you know very european existence it is man it absolutely <laughs> is but this one was good i quite liked it um i can't remember who the lead is in this the the male lead. it's i think it's like a pan-european you know with a sprinkle of american casted uh, actors but criterion film fear uh, quite enjoyed it um then I watched one that I had thought was going to be my number one film, film of the year from a filmmaker that you know I have a deep, deep, deep affection for. It's uh, Paolo Sorrentino's Youth. 
And um, I watched it with my dad. I was saving it to watch it with my dad um, just because I felt like it would be kind of really great subject matter. Um, so I had him over for brunch one day and and uh, we watched the movie. Um, it's it's incredible. I, I've said to people that I feel like so – I probably said it to you. Uh, Sorrentino has a passion for life. Um, uh, he looks at sort of the magic and wonder of the little moments in people's lives. And I think he has a real love for – for humanity and and the absurd moments in life, the irony of life, uh, everything. Just I think there's he drinks from that cup very deeply, and um, it's on display here. And it's nice to see Kane and Keitel and Dano, um, but you know it's really the Kane and Keitel show. Um, really gets them play off each other, and you know it's it's funny, it's it's profoundly beautiful and moving in spots. Um, I think it's a slight step down from The Great Beauty. For me, but in saying that, I mean, you know, this will definitely be in my top 30, probably top 10. Uh, if, if it doesn't make my top 10, it's been a very good year. Um, very good stuff. And I think it might be your favorite of his, like I said, because of the subject matter. So, mm-hmm. Looking forward to it. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, Charlie Brown Christmas Tales was next. This was like, a, I want to say like an early 90s jam we got on YouTube, where it's almost done like an anthology format where it takes each of the principal characters and has them sort of starting off reading a, a Dear Santa letter, or writing a Dear Santa letter, as a little four or five minute adventure with, not adventure, but episode with them. Nothing really to connect them other than the fact that they're the peanuts. Quite enjoyable. I had never seen it, so I was good with it. Um, next up, I watched uh, one that um, your daughter watched before me. Uh, that is, of course, Bone Tomahawk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and as you and I spoke about, I think this is a fantastic debut film. I think that uh, is it Zoller, Craig Zoller, is that his name? Yeah, it's Craig uh, Zoller. Yeah, I think it is that. I hope it's that. Yeah, I'm going to check it out here because I don't want to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I want to botch his name. Yeah, that's Craig Zoller. Um, yep. He puts in a really assured film here i think that he um gets i mean what a cast for you i mean this is like hard this is like schrader well maybe not quite well you think this cast is comparable to uh to, to blue collar uh first yeah i think cast? so i think so the only difference is these guys have been around for a little while whereas blue collar they were kind of up and coming yeah maybe a yeah, little bit more sure. for sure but it's a, it's a fantastic film it's it's very a to b um but I think it's beautifully done. Uh, he, he stretches his legs. He's not overtly showy. Um, it's a real throwback, you know, searchers kind of uh, contemporarily updated with, you know, a real nasty, nasty back end. Oh, man. Um, oh, man. <laughs> Talked about that wishbone. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, you won't forget that scene anytime the, no, the, this year. <laughs> you totally won't. Russell looks fucking majestic. Uh, um, Wilson's good. Fox is good. But as I'd said to you, the real... I don't want to say revelation because we've always known how great he was, but the performance of the film for me was Richard Jenkins. I just, mm-hmm, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I think the film was not shot as well as it could have been, but I think it was more concerned with steak than sizzle. So, and I'm fine yeah. with that. Yeah, I think it was more about the writing than it was <clears throat> about the uh, filmmaking. Then, yeah, precisely. Uh, next up was The Freshman, not the Marlon Brando, Matthew Roderick Jam. Oh, yeah, yeah, I didn't know you watched this. No, I didn't watch this. I watched the other freshman, the, the Harold Lloyd oh. jam. Oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> yeah. 
So this was a Friday I was night. Say, I knew you watched the other one. I didn't know you watched the Marvel uh, Brando. That freshman double. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I'm sure there's been another film called The Freshman in there somewhere, too. Oh, yeah. Um, this was Friday night, and William, my seven-year-old son, likes to stay up a little bit late, wait up for dad, and he'll say, oh, can I watch something with you? And I have plans. I'm going to watch some piece of trash, and then he's up, and I don't have the heart to say go to bed. So, you know, we try to find something that's kind of a happy medium. So... We put on The Freshman, and it was my first Harold Lloyd film, so I, I liked it. I'd said to you, I feel, and I, I hate to say this to, for the Bryn because it's going to break his heart, but I feel like um, Lloyd is a distant third in the Keaton-Chaplin-Lloyd race. Mm-hmm. Uh, Keaton just, you know, he just towers over the other two, respectfully. I mean, for me, mm-hmm. you, you both we had a good little conversation about the other night on the phone. Um, but this was good. A few great moments. I think the last, the football, the uh, football match at the end is pretty wonderfully shot. There's some great moments. Um, yeah, but uh, all in all, solid. I'm glad I finally got a Lloyd film uh, in the books. Um, next up was one that uh, I didn't watch with my son. I just, I've been watching so much kind of fancy stuff lately that I just wanted to get into, uh, you know, more kind of PM entertainment or kind of 80s, 90s action. So I watched uh, Excessive Force with Thomas Ian Griffith, Lance oh, yeah. Henriksen. Here's a cast. Thomas Ian Griffith, Lance Henriksen, James Earl Jones, Tony Todd, Burt Young, uh, and, and someone named Danny Goldring. <laughs> That's an awesome name. Looks like the 90s unattractive version of CDR in the film, um, which is amazing. This, well, they were, uh, I, remember, I remember this because I remember they were trying to push Thomas Ian Griffith as an uh, action star. Oh, were they ever? He had come off of, uh, was it Karate Kid Part 3? Three? 3, that's right, man. That's right. And uh, he had a pretty good turn as a baddie in that. So Yeah. And I think he was a soap opera actor before or something. I know like he that. had a, I know he had a, um, uh, a background in, in ballet and theater. I don't know. He might have done soap work. It would make sense. Yeah. Because uh, he's a good-looking guy and stuff, but I don't know if he ever... I, I remember seeing this, but I don't remember much well. about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's fun. I mean, it's got a Chicago. They really shoot the hell out of Chicago. I mean, it feels like Chicago. Um, a great little synopsis: A group of Chicago cops are involved in a raid from which three million disappears. The local mob go after them, and the body count starts to rise. Oh yeah. So you know, classic kind of '80s, uh, early '90s setup. Um, and it's got a really fun cast. Tony Todd's got a mustache in it, which is crazy. Burt Young's the um, the uh, the mob boss, naturally. <laughs> um, so my wife and I ended up looking at photos of Burt Young's daughter and, you know, his, he was born Richard Morea. He's like a painter and, and look at pictures of Burt Young's paintings and stuff. So it's kind of sweet. He's on Facebook. Him and his daughter hang out a lot. I guess he was, he got married once. His wife died in 74 and he's never remarried. So yeah, he's not really very, he's a character actor. Not really very interested in the, uh, the limelight cause he doesn't do interviews. I don't think or any of that stuff. No, no, but I always love Burt Young. I mean, you know, he's, he's Burt Young, man. <laughs> Yeah, he's Burt Young. There's no other actor quite like Burt Young. Very Burt. He, in, uh, he was in that movie that we both liked uh, a couple years ago, right? That win-win movie? That, was that, was that the was wrestling that the one? The wrestling one, yeah. Didn't you watch that too? Yeah, I did. That was good. Yeah, he was in that, was I think, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Wasn't he the... Um, he was like the dad. The, or... the dad. Yeah, he was the dad. I was going to say the stepfather. Yeah, yeah. The dad. Yeah. Paul Giamatti's dad, yeah. That's right. Oh, that's right. That's right, yeah. No, it was good. Yeah, he was. He's he's always good, man. He's just you know he's plays. He's looked the same age for about forty years. He's the Dick Clark of Brooklyn-born Italian character actors. <laughs> yeah, I know. 
I know he's, he's had an amazing age. career playing the you know these characters, and he's looked the same this entire time. He's like the the ageless Burt Young. Yeah, he's uh, it's all that robot love, man. Yeah, Keeps that's him young. right. It's rather infamously <laughs> known as the robot lover, Burt Young. Yeah, Zap and Roger need to accompany him everywhere, man. Computer yeah. love. Um, so this was. Uh, this Zap was and fun. Roger need to learn about gun control, man. Yeah, no doubt, man. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> no doubt. Um, but uh, this was fun. I quite enjoyed it. Um, some of the cast, you think they're not going to play to shit they do in other films, but <laughs> true to farm, they do. <laughs> yeah, um, of course. It's, it's fun, though. It's fun. A good little. My wife watched it with me, so it was cool. Uh, then, you know, Christmas season. We got to trot out the uh, the Christmas classics, so we watched Rudolph, of course. What can I say that hasn't been said? What have I? What can I say that I didn't say? Probably last year. Uh, <laughs> let me ask you: Has your boy watched this yet? Uh, he watched a little bit of it. Actually, it's funny you say that. He watched a little bit of it this morning before he went to school. Nice. Well, what was his thoughts? Yeah, this morning it? still. Yeah, he watched a little bit of it. Uh, uh, like I told you before, he doesn't really get into much right now as far as watching stuff. He's not really into passive entertainment right now. So. Yeah. But he has watched uh, that a uh, little bit of that, and he has watched Frosty. Yeah, that's which I was kind of concerned about him watching Frosty. I thought Frosty might traumatize him a little the bit. The end. Well, just the you know the greenhouse thing and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's intense. It traumatized me. I used to hate it, man. That's a motherfucker of a villain, man. Yeah, I used to hate that fucking guy. You know. Yeah. Oh, geez, no joke. Well, even in even in Rudolph, man, Santa's a prick. The father's a shithead. Yeah, I know. No, it's terrible. I know. That's what I, that's what I told my wife. I was like, these these old specials, the problem with these old specials are, you know, I never know when, like, uh, Mama Claus is going to, like, whip out a cigarette or something. Yeah, I don't or know, a bottle so. of booze or something. <laughs> yeah. With the three X's on it. You never know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> three X's on it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what's crazy, too, and I might have said this last year, is it's funny to me how much The Lion King follows the Rudolph template. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It yeah, totally yeah. does. It really does. Misfits, Maybe that's why I like the, the Lion King because I've, I've always liked the Rudolph story. I mean, obviously, it's very much an underdog story, and it's very much the Rudolph is very much the Rocky of yeah, uh, the redemption Christmas of the son, the misunderstood son, and yeah, it's heavy. I'll tell you what, man, I haven't watched Lion King. That's right. Rudolph's dad is a real fucking prick, oh, he's isn't he? A dickhead, man. He's trying to cover his nose up and everything. Oh man, he's the worst. I, I remember that now, man. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, he like gets some mud and like puts yeah, on rubs the mud. Yeah, yeah. What an asshole for a dad, man. He, he can't even handle his son's differences, man. And Santa's not much better at first. No, uh, Santa's also kind of weird looking at that one because she's trying to fatten him up, right? Yeah, Papa, he's, he's all Papa, eat, eat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Such a bizarre thing. It's amazing. But the, it's all about you. We needed to see, see, man, Rankin Bass missed the boat. They needed to do the adventures of Yukon Cornelius. <laughs> yeah. That yeah, guy. Yukon Cornelius is one of the great characters. Muy macho. He's amazing. Yes, he is. He's got a beard that can rival Kurtz and Bone Tomahawk. He looked, man. He looked like Loaf about a year ago. He totally did. <laughs> he totally did, man. <laughs> Loaf, I, I meant to post that. One time he posted a picture of him waking up with his beard, his yes. full grown beard. I remember thinking he looked like Yukon Cornelius. Yeah, man. You just needed to get a picture, like do a split screen of him and the Abominable Snowman together. Man. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. Um, but. Uh, where was I? Oh, uh, Lion King. I can tell you now. I haven't watched it in probably about, I don't know, 15, 18, 20 years. I can tell you now, if I watch it, especially with my sons, you want to see the fucking waterworks. Yeah, probably. Oh, brutal. Um, then uh, a couple more we watched to close out the week. Last night, one, I, one I've been meaning to watch for, I don't know, I guess three or four years since I'd heard about it. 
and I'm glad I finally got around to it. Uh, also on Hulu, the Vida Criterion Collection, A Christmas Tale. It's a French film. Um, let me find. I can't find the name of the. Uh, there it is. 2008. Uh, Arnaud uh, de Plechin directed it. It's got uh, French royalty: Catherine Deneuve, Matthew Emmerich, uh, Melville Popo, one of my favorites. Um, Chiara Mastroianni. Isn't he the guy that directed the uh, the other film with Emmerich in it, where he couldn't he couldn't move his anything but his eyes? Oh, I don't the butterfly know. film. I can't remember oh, the name of it. Oh, the diving bell and the butterfly. Yeah, didn't he want to direct that? that no, you know who I thought that was, and I, I think it was what's his name. Oh, I can see he's a bigger dude. He was like a writer or a producer. Yeah. Maybe I'm thinking of the Sea Inside with. Uh, yeah. Oh, Bardem. Yeah. What's his name? Julian Schnabel. Wasn't it Julian Schnabel yeah. that? I think the, the did diving bell and the butterfly. Oh, maybe. Yeah. You, you know what? You might be right. Yeah. Let me see. I oh yeah, it was, was Julian. Almerick was in the diving bell and the butterfly. I think it was. Him. Yeah, and he did Before Night Falls, which is why I said about Almado- uh, Almodovar. Um, I'm looking at his face. Fuck me. I like Almerick. He's got a. He's fantastic. Yeah, he's got a face that can go either way. He can play good guys and he can play real fucking ratty bad guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he can do both. He, he's he's got a great dynamic face. Yeah, uh, Matthew Almerick was in uh, Diving Bell. Okay. Uh, I was. Referring to, um, and I'm getting old and forgetful. Um, well, I'll join the club. Yeah, fuck. <laughs> head ahead of the class, dear buddy. Yeah. Javier Bardem, yeah. because the first film I ever saw him in was Before Night Falls. I rented it. I'd heard great things about it. And yeah, Julian Schnabel. So anyway, A Christmas Tale. Uh, great film, man. Uh, really great film. Um, family comes together. Kind of a dysfunctional family comes together at Christmas. Um, it's it got a lot of small scenes, a lot of revelations. It's a two and a half hour film. It's very talky, but it's never boring. Um, you know, uh, France, much like Japan and Italy, I think they really get the the familial drama. They they really nail it. Um, I like this quite a bit. And Dinova, she's a goddess. And I'll tell you something that was really profound about this. <clears throat> And I, I always love after I watch a film and I've tossed it around for a few days, then going back to see what some of the people I really admire in the reviewing world uh, think of the film. Mm-hmm. So I was on the elliptical today and I decided to read um, Roger Ebert's review of the film. Mm-hmm. And it just, you know, beautifully said. He never, there's no pretension typically when you read his stuff, kind of meat and potatoes, but he just, he seems to nail things and he really understands stuff. And, He's talking about how uh, Chiara Mastroianni is cast as the, ironically, as the daughter-in-law of Catherine Deneuve's character because Deneuve and Marcello are her parents. And for some reason, I obviously knew Marcello was her father, but I forgot that Catherine Deneuve was her mother. Mm-hmm. So I'm watching her in the film and I'm going, boy, does she ever look like her dad? It's weird that I find her beautiful, isn't it? What does that say about me? You know, <laughs> on and on. And uh, and he said in the review, he goes, a lot of times when you see her looking at the mother, because you can tell they have a long history together as his daughter-in-law, the family's kind of grew up together. You can see her looking at the, her mother-in-law with this sad face and this real sense of longing. And I got to mute you for a second, yeah, so yeah. just uh, keep talking. Uh, the sad face and the sense of longing and how uh, Depochin 
frames her face or shoots it in an angle in a way that really accentuates how much she looks like Marcello, her father, Marcello Mastroianni, and how, to me, that was such a beautiful kind of profound tribute for him to almost have the, the father, Marcello, brought back to life through the daughter and this longing and the sadness and melancholy in her face uh, representing him in this kind of weird meta way through the film. So, yeah, a really good film. I, I quite enjoyed it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's sweet in spots. It's kind of honest in spots. Uh, yeah, good stuff. Um, and then we finished the week with another pick of uh, the boys because Braden picked Rudolph last night. William wanted to watch Batman Returns, which I hadn't watched, I guess, probably since the theater, maybe VHS, probably VHS. Um, I remember liking it. I don't remember loving it. You know, all, all the, the Burton ones tend to, all those early ones tend to kind of meld together for me for the most part. But in watching this one again, uh, I'm with you and Miles, a lot of other people. It's probably my favorite of the original series. I love the the Nolan ones, so I wouldn't say it's better than those. But I think that uh, Burton's world building in this one, especially, is really great. Um, it's a beautiful film. I got to watch the Blu-ray. It's a beautiful film. I mean, uh, Catwoman's costume is very '90s PVC, but it does look fantastic. A fantastic looking costume for the time. I think the the layer of the penguins great. It's really inspired. Um, but the thing that struck me the most was. Two things, and forgive me if this is in the Batman comics. I don't know for sure, but the the Christopher Walken character's name is Max Schreck in this. Yes, right. So That's correct. Now we all know who Max Schreck is. Uh, well, maybe in case you don't know who Max Schreck is, um, Max Schreck, of course, of Nosferatu, is the actor that played Nosferatu. Right. Mm-hmm. So. He plays a sort of vampiric character. Now, the reason all of this um, is kind of piecing together for me as far as if it was Burton's way of doing this weird kind of meta tribute was they name him Shrek, which is kind of a tribute to Nosferatu. And who played Max Shrek in the 70s? Who played Max Shrek in the 70s? It would be Klaus Kinski, right? Kinski, right? Yeah. So... Or sort of. He played sort Nosferatu of. anyway. He played Nosferatu, right? So kind of, uh, you know, played... Uh, and then Defoe played him in the 2000s, right? That's right. So he played... Kinski played him. Now, this could just be me really reaching. When I look at Michelle Pfeiffer in uh, Batman Returns, it is unbelievable to me how much the way her hair's cut and her makeup's done, how much... She looks like Natasha Kinski. Oh, yeah. She kind of does, yeah. Now, who... What was Natasha Kinski in an early role to bring it back to Paul Schrader? Oh, a cat people, yeah? Cat, yes, a cat woman. Yes. I don't know if this is some tinfoil helmet. (laughs) I got too much time on my hands. It's a tenuous link. (laughs) But it was just... to, To me, that a guy that loves genre film... Obviously loved the Luton stuff, probably liked the Schrader stuff, liked probably the Herzog stuff, liked the Murnau stuff, and he gets this kind of weird meta tribute thing going with um, Pfeiffer. And I got to say, man, Pfeiffer is really good in the film. 
Yeah, she is. Like, I get burned out. I got so burned out in seeing the images of her from the film, like the, the promotional stuff. Yeah, they over-promoted. Oh, I mean, they promoted fuck. the crap out of that movie. They did, but she's fantastic. Uh, really fantastic in the film. Her apartment looks really kind of drabby, pink, kind of run-down. Um, Douglas Sirk meets John Waters chic. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's like this crazy cat lady, and even um, DeVito is really good in the film. I find. Yeah. You know, disgusting it's, teeth and oh, so gross with his flippers eating all those fucking sardines <laughs> and that kind of gross, like kind of green black tar he spits out oh, all the time. Yes. So nasty. It is, man. It's so nasty. <laughs> so not. Uh, you know, I think when they made it, I think they were hoping that you know Tim Burton wouldn't uh, do all that stuff because he turned them into monsters as opposed to villains but that's burton's thing right it's kind of that gothic type thing so it is but i think the other thing is fascinating if you look at the films he did was that he really infuses the characters with and some of this could have been source material but he really emphasizes it is the tragedy and the sadness that tends to inhabit the worlds of these villains right like right. penguin's story and that is tragic he was born disfigured his parents dump him in a fucking pond in his in his stroller and abandon yeah. him. Oh, it's terrible. Awful. He one lives of in the sewer. One his parents played by Pee Wee Herman. One of his parents, which is amazing to see. I said, and I had to give my kids a whole lesson, Pee Wee and the monocle and Pee Wee and Tim Burton. And, yeah. You know. That'd uh, be the only thing you ever want to talk about one eye and Pee Wee with with your yes, kids. Yes, ain't that the truth, man? <laughs> ain't that the truth? Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then... Michelle Pfeiffer's character is terribly put upon and just treated terribly by Watkins' character yeah. to the point where she's so loyal to him that she forgoes much of her own life to try to do well at her job, to stumble onto something that, that he was involved with, only for him to try to murder her. Yeah, I know. It's a very sad, sort of pathetic character as well. Mm-hmm. So I just I really that's one of the things that you know I you and I are big fans of Burton. I love now going back and seeing Burton stuff as an older man and as a man as an older man as a man who's older than he was when he first saw them and just uh, just seeing the, the the layers that that come with his stuff and you know and, and then I was able to tell my kids yeah and he did this and he did Pee Wee and he did Frankenweenie and, and it's kind of cool you know to see uh, to see that whole now the worlds that they're seeing through these filmmakers but anyway that's everything nice fuck it's a good week more epic week than i thought yeah um let's take a short break you think i'm really throwing shit at the wall with that kinski thing <laughs> no 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 i mean with somebody like burton yeah that's what i'm no, saying no i mean you know i think people forget that burton's as influenced by film as somebody and everything he saw as like a Tarantino or a Rodriguez, I think those things are kind of by osmosis. I think they're in there. I don't know if he's doing it on purpose. I think you know that he could potentially be, but I think also he could not even realize he's doing it because he's so influenced by those things. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I, I never really put the two and two together. But now I find it kind of fascinating because she does kind of. Yeah, when you get her, yeah, that one haircut she gets and stuff. Yeah, she does kind of look like Kidsky a little bit. It's her hair in Texas, but her like. Obviously, the homage is to cat people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I can see it. Didn't Billy D. Williams in that film too? He's in the first one. No, that's right. He's in the first one. Yeah, he's in the first one, and he's terribly miscast as someone. Who is he? Commissioner Harvey Gordon Dent. or Harvey Dent? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> the guy they got is Commissioner Gordon. So useless. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the he's first just one, such yeah. a useless character in the first few films. Oh, that's right. He's in the second one, too. That's right. But I don't think that's really what his aim was. I think it was just a token thing uh, yeah. to put him in the film. But, you know, this one's good, man. It's It's, it's got a real – and the, the, the set design's beautiful. It's got a lot of 1940s kind of German expressionist kind of look to it. It's it's a cool film, man. It's very cool. I was glad to revisit it. And you prefer it to even the Nolan stuff, right? I do. Yeah, I, I like the world creation more. I, I appreciate the Nolan stuff is set in the real world, but I like that. Uh, I like the kind of world that uh, Burton plays around in. I like that kind of. It, it looks like a modern world, but it's it's kind of like a lot of Burton stuff. Like it's. I mean, even his uh, more recent films that they exist in a world kind of all their own in a weird oh, way. Yeah. And I've always kind of liked that about his stuff. No, it's true. It's very true. All right, cool. Well, let's uh, let's take a break. And what do you want to talk about first here? Uh, I don't care. Whatever one you want to talk about first. doesn't matter to me. Um, we can talk- go uh, alphabetical. We can go... Uh, which because we go from A to Z. Z. I think Kevin <laughs> yeah. Matthews pointed that. Or we yeah. can go uh, chronological, which is Z to A. And then uh, <laughs> let's go. Let's go. Off. We go England to Italy. Or Italy to England. <laughs> let's start. Let's start in. Uh, let's start in Italy. Okay. Greece we'll by way of Italy. Greece by way of Italy. Okay. We sure. are going to do a short break. We're going to come right back.
episode. It is a notorious film, which I think, contrary to popular belief, was not on the Nast Video Nasties list, or it was on the Video Nasties list. I can't recall exactly. It seems like it was, but I don't know. I'm not. I'm not sure. Well, it's got an infamous cover, right? So, um, the cover itself would probably ban it from a lot of places. Yeah, it totally would. I'm, I saw it in a video store, and it was even said banned in, I don't know, they didn't say 36 countries or something like that. But it oh, that, say, that, that old nut. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that old uh, sticker to get you to. It was. It was one of the nasties. Yeah, which would make sense, because 1980, roundabouts, uh, that stuff kind of started taking place in the early 80s, right? So <clears throat> early to mid-80s, and it was a rather popular video title. I mean, I saw it a few times on video. Oh, yeah. Rather infamous uh you know, like a lot of those Italian gore films, this is a rather infamous uh, kind of, you know, weekend rental type thing. Can you make it through Anthropophagus? That's right, man. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Which, as an adult, you realize very quickly, yeah, you can. <laughs> but don't know, if, don't know if you always want to. Yeah, that's right, man. <laughs> that's right. That house. Um, all right. So do you want me to synopsize this? Do you want to lead on it? What do you want to do? Uh, I can lead on it. Yeah, sure. You cool. can synopsize. That'd be fun. Let me let me open the synopsis then, since uh, I, I volunteered to do something that I was ill-equipped to do in true well, that's, fashion. That's something, yeah, I do that all the time. So nice, nothing new. Okay, so uh, a group of tourists become stranded on an uninhabited island where they're stalked by an insane, violent, and grotesque killer. And I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Joe D'Amato. Yeah. It's a very strange. Uh, this is a very strange movie in a lot of ways. It's not. It's not so much that it's rather infamous for the gore, and the the fact you know it, it deals with these kind of things that like a lot of Italian films were dealing with at the time. This came out the same year as uh, Cannibal Holocaust, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Make them die slowly came out shortly after. I believe I can't remember the year exactly. It was eighty two. Eighty one, eighty two. Yeah, something like that. Anyway. So this is, you know, Zombie was around. I think it was 79. That was uh, Fulci. And so all these Italian gore films really hitting the racks at the video stores, you know, filling up the video stores with these Italian gore films. So this has really hit the, the sweet spot for me, uh, being young and having access to a VCR, because uh, I was able to get a lot of get a hold of a lot of these films I'd seen covered in, like, Fangoria magazine and Cinefantastique and all these magazines that I would read growing up that, you know, I couldn't see these films. Oh yeah! Finally, they start hitting the racks. Uh, it's got many different titles. I don't even remember all the titles. Uh, something like the Beast. Uh, some, there's all kinds of crazy titles for this film. I think they kind of repackaged it and sold it as many times as possible. Now we've talked about. As, as Joe, we, yeah, we done a Joe D'Amato film for right. We did that uh, that one kind of Mondo thing he did right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That uh, Cameo Obscura put out. That's right. But for somebody who's directed almost 300 films, we haven't covered very many of his movies. <laughs> so. But a lot of his stuff, in fairness to us, a lot of his stuff is porn, and I don't really know if it's coverable. Uh, if there is coverable porn by Joe D'Amato, I'm sure we'd do it, but uh, it'd have to be something interesting. I, I don't know. Uh, I'm sure we'll I'm sure we'll cover some more of his films, though. I mean, he's done some other stuff. It's fun. So what's what's the ger- anyone any idea what the German title is? I have no idea. I have no access to the internet uh, right now. So fuck Heartbreak City. <laughs> you trying to fresser. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Amazing. Yes. And the X-rated version is Maneater, Der Mensen, Mensen Fresher. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this 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 is a film that 
It comes from the man Luigi Montefiore, who, if those of you don't know, Luigi Montefiore is also famed uh, cult actor George Eastman. Slash heartthrob. Yeah, slash heartthrob for some, yeah. <laughs> for us, especially. Yeah. Uh, he's been on the show several times. He's a lot of fun in all the stuff he does. Uh, he always really kind of goes for it, uh, especially in the stuff he tends to write. If he's in it and he's writing it, uh, he tends to really kind of go for it. Uh, he does go for it in this film. Uh, oh, I, I spoke, oh yeah. I spoke with you on the phone earlier this week and or last or well late last week, and said that uh, this film does feel like a film that was generated uh, from a couple of scene ideas toward the back end, and then kind of created from those two scene ideas and then kind of created backwards because it's sort of a slasher film. Uh, although it's a slasher that makes no sense, it's almost like this uh, Nikos character, this George Eastman character can breathe underwater he can do all kinds of crazy stuff oh man yeah he's he, he yeah, could he be <laughs> charles xavier speaking of his school for gifted youngsters yeah many powers. he can uh, tear off heads and put them in buckets yeah he can uh silently he can, yeah he can drag bodies across a very open like wall kind of like part part partisan type thing while everybody's walking right below him and nobody can see or hear him even though he's six foot nine and he's uh sun-dried like a sun-dried tomato oh big time man uh so it, it, it's definitely not it, it's definitely a joe d'amato film in the way that he's playing with horror conventions but he's not looking to explain any of them it makes no sense but it's an exploitation film through and through it feels like they got some money had a little vacation time they probably shot another one or two films there uh chances are i don't know what all d'amato did in 1980 but chances are he probably had another film at the same location or maybe a couple for oh, some strange yeah. reason, him and him and Eastman hit it off. I mean, they they work together a lot. I don't, Kindred I, spirits. Yeah, it's weird to me that they they ended up being the two that would hit it off, that Eastman would hit it off with him. Because I mean, all, a lot of directors used him um, in Italy. Uh, even Fellini used him. But uh, it seems that him and D'Amato they just had the like taste. And he said in interviews before and stuff that you know people come to him to write scripts because they know the kind of stuff he tends to write. So. He knows what he's known for. I mean, this is a guy who's written films about <laughs> bestiality and cannibalism and uh, hus- uh, dads sniffing their daughter's panties. And, yeah, and jerking off to it in a moving uh, train. Yeah, and, you know, he just he deals with the seedier side of life, and he doesn't have any problems writing about it. And uh, he doesn't have any problems performing it, really, either. That's right. Maybe, yeah, maybe a nice man. Don't know, but. Um, some of the things I remember about the most about this film, it, it definitely the score. The score is bizarre. It, I love the score. It yeah, it works. It, it doesn't works. fit, but it works somehow. Yeah, it doesn't feel it, organic to the film. I know it feels. It's such a strange score. It feels like some kind of weird, like out of tune harpist chord of some sort, or some weird kind of seventies like heady sci-fi kind of bleep bloop kind of yeah or like that you know what it reminds me of the parallax view fucking score (laughs) yeah Yeah, a little bit of extra in there too yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) but it's a weird one uh to say the least but i remember that almost immediately as soon as the dvd menu comes up the blu-ray not dvd the blu-ray menu i should say ooh, faux pas faux pas the blu-ray menu comes up on my region free player uh the 88 films release uh Immediately the music kicks in and it immediately takes me back to like 1983 and my early VCR days because I can remember. And it even almost sounds the same. I used to think that listening to it on VHS tape, the reason why it sounded kind of so out of key and kind of bendy was because the tape was in bad shape. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But come to find out, this is a remastered version. That's just the way it sounds. (laughs) 
<laughs> and uh, it's one, it's one of these things. But this, this movie looks good on blue. I mean, it doesn't. It's not going to blow your socks off. But if you're like me and you grew up watching this kind of stuff, uh, it looks better than a film like this has any right to look. Uh, certainly, uh, maybe to the point to where uh, it kind of hinders it with uh, Eastman's kind of uh, makeup. You know, <clears throat> yeah, Umberto Lindsay <clears throat> light type makeup. Which kind my of wife skull, kind of a swimming cap with uh, some some, some uh, pig's assholes on it or something. I don't know what yeah, those pubes are. Pubes and pig's assholes. My wife carded it. She gave him a, a yellow card for his makeup. She was, yeah, not too. Yeah, down. she was disappointed, right? She was. And disappointed in the makeup. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is a little disappointing to say the least. It's not. Uh, it's not over. I mean, Eastman sells it, and he's spooky he's, looking. He is. His eyes sell it. Yeah, and the size of the man. I mean, we always mention this whenever we talk about him. But people, you got to remember how big this guy is. He's six foot nine. Mm-hmm. That is a large individual. There's not a lot of actors that are six foot nine that typically are on screen as themselves. They usually always play the monster. Or they're in a suit or something. Six foot nine is huge. That is a that is a big person. I think the biggest leading man I can think of. Who's who would you say is the biggest tallest leading man right now? I mean, even at the tallest, they would probably. Is Vince Vaughn what like six three or something? I, I think he's six six or six, well, he's, he's he's big. Yeah, yeah, he's tall. But six nine That's, is almost like you're like power forward, slightly undersized center in the NBA. Yeah. Well, the That's thing about Eastman tall, too man. is he's not he's not skin and bones either. He's a big man. Like yeah, he, he is. I don't know if he worked out a lot, Wendy's but he's certainly kind of man. yeah, he's certainly you know a filled out uh, gen- gentleman. So he he's rather imposing on screen, even in, in in wacky makeup and bad clothes. He still comes across as a menace. If he was a playgirl centerfold, they would have to add a third page. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Jimmy exactly. Stewart was oh man, Jimmy Stewart was six three. Gregory Peck was surprisingly six three. John Wayne six four. I didn't even know this. Vincent Price was six foot four. Yeah, I guess so. I guess oh, he, he was pretty tall. Playing two guard, man. Liam yeah. Neeson six four. Oh yeah, he's big. Yeah, he's. he's Liam Schreiber, big. I was gonna say six three. Oh, oh, here's one. Here's one, man. I bet there's no way you knew this guy was this tall. James Cromwell six foot seven, two Whoa. inches from heaven. Jesus. Oh man, he's got an amazing. Um, He's got an amazing IMDb, IMDb photo where he's wearing like a, like an African kind of leather hat, <laughs> and he's smiling. It's nice. awesome. Nice. Six foot seven, James Crump. Tim Robbins, six five. That's right. There are some tall Donner guys. Sutherland, six three. Christopher Lee, six five. I'll, if I find one over six nine, I'll let you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's gonna be hard. I can't think of very many actors that aren't cult actors, at least that aren't. Uh, that are, I think six, seven might be the James Cromwell might be the tallest nominated Oscar, Oscar, Oscar nominated actor of all time. John Lithgow, a surprising six, four. Yeah. He does seem like he'd be pretty big. That's amazing. It's very amazing. Cause you know, the, the real truth of Hollywood is most of your leading men are really between five, like five, seven, eight and six five, foot, eight. right? Yeah. Yeah. Some of them are even shorter than that. So, you know, the, the, the old thing, you know, that the, the the scene in uh, Cobra, when we, back when we did a Cobra review, the scene in Cobra when uh, he kind of walks up to Virginia Nelson, kisses her, and they dug a trench all the way around where Virginia Nelson would walk. Oh, totally, man. <laughs> so Stallone would be, you know, at least close to her head, you know, because he's only about, I guess, what, 5'9", something like that, 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, yeah, nine. something like that. He's a Brad bit. Garrett, not a leading man, but he's coming close. He's six eight and a half. Yeah, he's a big dude. That's right. He is a big dude. Ooh, the George Eastman biopic starring Brad Garrett. <laughs> <laughs> 
Can you imagine? <laughs> oh man, that'd be amazing. Man, it's hard. I'm rolling through like a lot of six foot plus guys and Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Let's get back to it here. Uh, but Eastman is very memorable in the film. The two things I always remember the most are Eastman, of course, and uh, the the, uh, the score. Um, both of them for the bizarreness in a lot of ways. Uh, Eastman's performance is very close to Panama in a lot of ways in this, and mm-hmm. it's just you know very almost a silent performance except for a scene, uh, uh, a memory wipe scene, kind of a go back and tell you the story of how this character became this character, which is a real bleak and awful uh, George Eastman like way of a character to become a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he can't just be a guy that's lost his mind. He has to do something that's even worse than what he's doing now. Yeah, of course. Uh, when people talk about Italian films and dubbing, this is a great example of how bad it can get. Yes. This film might be, out of all the Italian films we've covered on the show, and we've covered a lot, and we've okay. covered some pretty, pretty, I'd say deep, deep cut Italian films on the show. Yeah, we totally have. This one has worse dubbing than even like Giallo de la Venza, Venezia or whatever. Oh, and, Giallo de Venezia, yeah, yeah. man. I mean, this one, this this is some of the worst dubbing we've ever done. I mean, wow, that, that's it's bad. It's interesting though. You mentioned Paolo Sorrentino. That one, the one that plays the pregnant lady in this, she's in. She was in the Great Beauty. Serena Grandi, man, she is. That's the Sammy. She's Sammy Search and Willie Search material. Yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah, she I love her. Yeah, she's great. Uh, she's great, man. But she uh, I doesn't like look her like her. She well. doesn't look like she looks kind of different in this compared to compared to what she looks her, like now. She's much more full now, right? Yeah, so she found her wings later in life. Yeah, kind of getting to that semi-mature period. Yeah, man. Um, like <laughs> that that Sean and Sammy look. Yeah, that she picked up later on, but uh, yeah, she's pretty great. I I don't know about leaving my pregnant wife on a boat with a helper. No, even again, my wife carded uh, carded <laughs> that move. Yeah, that was a bad move. I That's mean, uh, move. your wife sprains her ankle, and you're like, hey, I'm going to walk around the town with Tisa Farrow. Yeah. I mean, it's just not, you know, it's just not appropriate. No. You know, I mean. Definitely not. I, I mean, I guess I guess she tells him to go ahead, maybe, but. But she doesn't want him to go ahead. Nah, I, don't, I, I wouldn't. I mean, if she wouldn't have been pregnant, maybe I would have said, hey, you know, stick around here with, uh, you know, Reggie the pool boy, whoever this yeah. guy is. But, oh, Buckethead's what he becomes. But. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> But otherwise, I think I would have stuck around, you know, and helped her out, you know. Although I got to say that she she really she really sold that ankle move because that wasn't she much did. of a step, and man, she really she, she really did. sold it. But she does sell it, man. Yeah, uh, Tisa Farrell, like I said, she, we did had her on the show before. She was in the Last Hunter. She did a few films, like ten or twelve films, most of them overseas. Never really caught on. Kind of became a nurse in Vermont, of all things. That's what it says on oh, our IMDb seriously. page. Yeah, <laughs> I've never. I have to say, I've never really been a Tisa Farrell fan. She. I'm not either. Although I do think she's more attractive than Mia Farrell for me. Uh, I don't know, man. That's a. I'm not a Mia fan. Well, uh, they have Mia's hats. No, I'm thinking of Diane Keaton. I was gonna say Diane Keaton. The hats kill it for me, but that's Diane Keaton. I'll take Mia over Tisa because Tisa yeah. looks to me like the grown-up version of the girl who squishes the lizard in Deep Red. <laughs> a little red-haired girl who always played like, oh, yeah. demon child. The one that grew up and was in Demons, yeah. She yeah, that's right. Too. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that girl too. Yeah, I got a thing for uh, the kind of weird, odd redheads. Yeah. I think I would tease. I don't. I don't like. The, I'm not a big fan of the pixie look. So. And Zora Korova, of course, is in this. Yes, yes. Zora Korova, who gets um, what would you call the the maneuver she gets in the New York Ripper? You can't call it fingered because it's there's no <laughs> fingers involved. But we know that Morales has silver toes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know, ducked. 
Yeah. <laughs> she got ducked. She got ducked, man. Because yeah, with the the Daffy Duck talk or the, the Donald Duck talk and then everything it's else. Toes, man. Anyway, she she's been in rather infamous uh, sleazy oh, films. She was she in, was, wasn't she in Make Them Die Slowly? Was she in that? Well, she might have been, but I think she's also. I think she plays like. She's so, been on our show before a couple she, times, I think. And she she's been on Terror Express. Yeah, yeah, fucking sleaze fest. House of Laughing Windows, Cannibal Ferox. Oh yeah, yeah, she was in Make Them Warriors of the Wasteland. Oh yeah, yeah, we've had her on a few I mean, times. I don't know if uh, we done we did Warriors of the Wasteland, didn't we? We sure did with um with Andy. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Eastman was in that too, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, he sure was. <laughs> That's one where he <laughs> forces himself upon somebody. Uh, he sodomizes our hero. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, makes because, him you know, humble. <laughs> yeah, because you know, Enzo was probably like, "I need a good scene here." Hey, George, <laughs> what do you George got? Like, Here's my idea. Yeah, man. <laughs> and so Enzo's looking at his brother like, "Whoa." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, Dad never would have made a ooh, film he, like he, this. He does the Letterman like, "Ooh," with the collar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I gotta say though, the, the one dude that offers the coke to Pharaoh, man, he has, inarguably, maybe not inarguably, but arguably, certainly. The tightest pair of corduroy pants I've ever seen on a dude. He does. Man, those things are <laughs> hugging big time, man. That is not that is not a comfortable. I mean, tight denim's bad enough, but tight corduroy, I don't know. And uh, tight corduroy is next level. Yeah, that, that's going to lead to some stink. That's all I got to say. Oh, it is. And you're going to have, you know, that look when corduroy wears down, you just have like the material. <laughs> yeah. Like, underneath the corduroy part, yeah, that's going to wear down quick. So we'll kind of get into the kind of things that people don't like about this movie. A lot of people go into this, I think, anticipating, sadly, because of its reputation, it to be a little bit more of a romp. This movie is <laughs> slow. It's more of a tiptoe for the first Well, George Eastman doesn't even show up. He doesn't even show up in the movie until 51 minutes in. You don't even see him hour, until yeah. yeah, 51 minutes. The movie's only 89 minutes long or 84 minutes long. I can't remember. But he doesn't show up till minute fifty one. So if you're an Eastman fan, uh, be prepared. You're not gonna see even if you well, if you're a fan of his because of his looks, you're probably not gonna like this movie. But if you're a fan of his period, it might be a little rough too, because he doesn't show up until fifty one minutes into the movie. He he is in it quite a bit after that, but oh, with some lumbering it, moves and some uh some rather infamous scenes, but he's not uh he's not prevalent in the film, so you gotta be prepared for that. I think that its reputation harms this film. I think it's fine. I I find the pacing okay, although I do think they spend a little too much time kind of walking around, wondering what the hell's going on. Wandering around a house, not turning on lights. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of uh, bad logic and, uh, you know, tarot cards falling in the water and, uh, you know, all kinds of... That's a superstition, but you get that a lot, interestingly, with, with European films, specifically Italians. Superstition, things are foretold, um... But I felt like Joe, Joe D'Amato wanted to increase the fetus, the the prosthetic fetus budget, so he had to decrease the light bulb budget with the film. Yeah, that's the thing with the movie. That the movie has two, I think, like really great scenes as far as you know, like gore scenes or horror scenes. One of them doesn't last very long. That's the fetus scene, which I won't go into much more detail about than that. Most people already know, but I won't yeah. go into much more detail than that. And then, of course, the the gut scene toward the end, which is oh, maybe in maybe in some ways even better. Yeah. Than the uh, the other scene, I think, and I think it's because of the juxtaposition of it playing out in daylight, and oh, the way that kind of works and stuff. Because so stark. Uh, yeah, I mean that's kind of a brave decision in an era when, you know, special effects are not. Well, let's just say they weren't. <laughs> 
they weren't fantastic, but I mean, they the Eastman sells it, and so does uh, so does the model with the way they cut it and stuff. And I love right. the way, you know, the look. It's it's also you know at that point you start to almost feel sorry for the Nikos character. They're giving some backstory and yeah, yeah, but it, it's such a bleak story that it is. I mean, you don't really feel like sorry for him, like oh poor dude, but you feel sorry for him, like oh man, what a miserable cunt this yeah, guy. He, he has no hope. He's no Oswald Cobblepot. No, no. I gotta say that girl in the beginning that gets it in the in the in the in the ocean. She was a she was hot. Yeah, but here's the speaking of hot man. Here's the GGTMC pro tip: you don't wear jeans and cowboy boots at the beach. <laughs> That's a bad move. Well, not well. It, it, it's 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 twofold though because it is a GGT. It's a GGTM pro. You don't do that if you're going to the beach to have fun. Yes. But if you do happen to be going to the beach to shoot your latest Gap Band video, it's okay. Then it's okay. <laughs> yes. You got it. There's very specific terms with which <laughs> yes. this can be but, one, but if you're in the GGTMC, one of those two things could happen at any moment on any beach. This is true. But if you're going to be lounging with your Walkman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The dog's like, fuck this. That dude's weird looking. I'm out that here. dog. Yeah, he was. He, he didn't want any part of it. I'm amazed that Eastman didn't write into the movie that he picks up the dog and bites the dog. Bites the dog dick, dog's dick or something. <laughs> yeah, 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 or the guy opens his eyes finally, he looks over and Eastman's fucking the dog. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we laugh and everything, but that's that's uh, like George Eastman to write something that's, like that's that. That's George's MO, man. Yeah, that's that's what he would do. Yeah. I think yeah, I think the pacing it does hurt it and its reputation does hurt it as well, but I still think it's serviceable. For yeah. this kind of movie, I don't think it's like incredibly rewatchable. I'm glad I own it on Blu ray now, though, because it's kind of a <clears throat> it's kind of a unique kind of gem in the archives of video. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, yeah, it's one of those moments in my life that I'll never forget when I came across Anthropophagus and, you know, how I thought at the time as a younger man, this is so intense. But as an older man watching it, it's. It's not intense. It's not very well made, although I do think in D'Amato's canon, it's one of his better films. Yeah. Um, I think it's really, it's it's overly padded. They had, like I said, I think they had like one or two scenes they had a great idea for, and they just built around those two scenes, and they just padded the hell out of this thing. Mm-hmm. And that's going to that's gonna really irritate some people. I get that. Um, but I think it's, it kind of, it works for me. Uh I don't know if it worked for you, so I'm going to go ahead and pass it to you, and let's see what you say. Okay. Um, it's great. You know, we got, we got Anthropophagus in the Christmas season, which is amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah. And Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. This I, hope has, none of you, I hope none of you are nine months pregnant. <laughs> yeah, for real. For real. Or, yeah. I should say also that my daughter did watch some of Anthropophagus with me as well. Nice, man. So she's really getting off to a ripper on Stark compared to my son. That's the, yeah. She's he, really, he only went as strong as Ferda Lance, but she's got yeah. Bone Tomahawk and Anthropophagus yeah, under her. She's belt. really, in fact, she grows up and she's like biting me all the time. I'm going to know the camera. <laughs> yeah. Sunk in. That's yeah, pun intended. Um, <laughs> there's a kind of a good Jaws underwater POV shot early on. Yeah. Uh, with the beach stuff. And, you know, this kind of shot of the plume of blood in the water. There's some stylish flourishes, but I feel like they wanted to. For D'Amato, it's amazingly stylish. Yeah, totally. Because I think he, uh, he could, for me personally, he comes off. Again, he has a few moments in films uh, beyond. Yeah. Dar- was it Beyond Darkness or whatever? And oh, Beyond the Darkness or Beyond yeah. the Door, Boy Omega, yeah. Yeah, there's a few things. That's a good that he's shot. Done. That's a shining, shining moment. Yeah, 
there's a few films where he gets overly stylish, but most of the stuff I know him for, he's rather, you know, it's rather chaste. It's not, it's not, it's not, he's not going to like blow you away with visuals. Yeah. Very workman. Yeah. He's uh, cranking them out. He's not looking at, I mean, although Fulci called him, uh, uh, you know, uh, what, what did I say? What did I Fulci, Fulci call him a master? Yeah. He called him a film. Yeah. He called him a master filmmaker. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Fulci was, you know, I remember he was, very diabetic during that interview, so maybe his blood sugar yeah, was off. It was off. Um, but, yeah, the plume of blood, I, you know, open stylus in the back end really ramps it up. But I think you, you've really hit the nail on the head. This is a film that did it not, had it not had the notorious reputation that it did, and it was kind of a deep cut, kind of under the radar Italian film, I think it would be better received by people who go into it with a an impossible sense of expectation. Mm-hmm. That's I think fair. that's part of the problem with the video nasties list to begin with. I oh, think the video yeah. nasties list is it's it's fun to think about in in retrospect. I think it's kind of silly at the time, but it in, in retrospect it's kind of fun to think of. But if you go back and look at a lot of those films, a lot of those films aren't as hardcore. I mean, there was more hardcore stuff out there that they were just they just didn't see or they didn't know about. There wasn't as yeah, there was some knee jerk stuff that they were quick to. Uh, get rid of because of how they perceived it to be without actually knowing. Um, what does this say? Football boots, dancing lessons with baby. I have no, I have no idea what that means. That note almost sounds better than one third of this movie. Yeah. We get a cleaver to the forehead, which is good. Uh, yeah, that always works. The boat stuff, good value. You know, they had access to a boat, and they said, "Hey, let's shoot this stuff." When we're getting, when we're, or we got to take a boat to the island, so let's shoot it. Yeah, right? yeah, that's that's what the whole film feels like. That the whole film feels like, "Hey, we got access to this stuff. Let's make a movie." Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the uh, the uh, the girl that plays the kind of wacky girl in the house, she's she was uh, rather attractive too. She's gone on to to do some things, to write some films and stuff. I can't remember what her name is off the top of my head, but yeah. the one that. The one that kind of comes out of the the thing and scares or cuts oh, a stab all, dude in the back. Yeah, she's all kind of freaking out and yeah, 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 yeah no, for sure. But my little Sammy search there. Oh, naturally. Um, <laughs> you had mentioned this, but my note was dat ankle sprain. <laughs> yeah, she sells it, man. She, she really does. does. I love the shot of the Parthenon. She's like uh, she's like Jay Cutler on that selling that injury. Mm-hmm, she does. Sorry, Bears fans. <laughs> yeah, we got a few, but hey, those are the breaks. I love you guys. I love you. Smoking Jay. Uh, we get the Parthenon in the background of one of these, and whenever I see the Parthenon, I think of Shaquille O'Neal when he was asked if he had a chance to visit the Parthenon when he was in Greece. He said, I didn't get a chance to go to that nightclub. <laughs> <laughs> whenever I see the Parthenon, I think of that. <laughs> Oh, some things in life you wish you weren't remembered yeah. for. That's one of Shaq Shaquille O'Neal's. Shaq Fu and, and that and, uh, and Kazam. And Kazam, yeah. It's quite the trifecta. Uh, we you spoke about. <laughs> I think the pregnant, the thing with the pregnant woman and all that. I think that it adds a certain vulnerability and tension to the film. In all seriousness, you know, it works well. Uh, the thunder in this, the whoever was. Um, Whoever made the decision, and I don't know if it was uh, if D'Amato had a hand in it or not, but the Foley artist, he, they they were supposed to have thunder, but it found, sounds like they have. It's like they took some of the uh, 
the sound from the Iron Eagle series because it sounds like fighter jets screaming overhead. <laughs> it's really strange. It does. And it, there's a lot of it, too. At one point, I mean, it just, it just yeah. man, it was pumping out my surround sound. And, man, it was like, this is getting obnoxious. Yeah, I thought you were going to It's like one hell of a storm, man. Yeah, the woman who pops up in the wine or whatever in the basement, it's a strong image. You know, really yes. strong visual. Yeah, I like I like that scene a lot. That's good. Cool. Uh, and I think it evokes something too. The horror is she's seen. Mm-hmm. Really, you know, it's really good stuff. Uh, George, I, I feel mm-hmm. like she's she's completely submerged in wine. I feel like how long has she been in there? Yeah, red red wine makes her feel so fine. Uh, the the reveal with Georgie is uh, UB forty. Uh, the, the reveal with Georgie with the lightning. And it reveals his face. I like that. It feels like a throwback, to like the Universal stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's you know he looks he looks crazy. Uh, totally does, man. He totally sells it, man. And of course, you know, once he gets next to a regular human being, he looks like the giant he is. He's he a giant hulking man. Um, this feels like a Warbeck jam in some ways. <laughs> like David Warbeck could have been the male star of this. He could have been. There's really that the, one of the weaknesses of this movie. Tisa Farrow's fine, and and the female actresses are all fine. There's no real strong male lead in this, other than Eastman. Yeah, Eastman is the best male lead, and maybe he had something to say about that, but I don't think so because he he would he no would share the screen with anybody. I mean, he yeah. worked with pretty much every every Italian actor you can think of, from Terrence Hill to you know whomever. But I don't know. I don't know if uh, they just couldn't get anybody or not. But I don't feel like any of the leads were very interesting. I think one guy was kind of Luke Miranda light. Yeah, very light. Yeah, very light. <laughs> that might have been the Coldroy dude. He he yeah uh, he had a look, but that was about it, man. Um, the stuff in the and the tomb. guy that owned the boat, he was a he's a real cold fish. I mean, he was a real bore. Oh, dude, so. yeah, he absolutely was. The stuff in the tomb is also scored well. Yeah, the score is quite good in this film. I have to say, I think. Despite it not really being organic necessarily, I think it works quite well. Um, and when they're in the tomb, Mister to see. Oh no, there was all these cages. I think in the cave or the, the tomb or whatever. I would have loved to have seen some bodies in there. Like more, uh, we get some. I think we get some women. I think locked up in them. But I would like to see more of that because I think that you could really maximized the tension and the horror of what's happened by these women being in cages or men. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I mean, whatever, just these people in cages, these helpless people. Yeah. This really, this film really does milk that, uh, that Italian mummified corpse budget. Oh, big time. And how There's about that, that, uh, that gorgeous George photo we see before he put on the shower cap? Yeah. Yeah, man. He's, uh, you know, he looked, if you do want to see George, I mean, at some point in this film, you do see him as, uh, George. Uh, he, he's on a raft at one point with a few sun blisters. Oh, does he ever? There's the husband in this. I will say, I will go on record and say he is the most useless husband in the history of cinema. He's pretty Easily. bad. He is awful. The yeah. moment when George he's, he's more limp than limp pasta. I mean, even man, limp pasta looks at him like, dude. He is so limp. And this is the only moment when the, the music's really bad. It's kind of this organ kind of sound, but. George is stalking them, and the husband, and not even in like an intense kind of screaming voice, he says, go away, leave us alone, please, motherfucker, he has people chained up, and he's been cannibalizing people, 
Yeah. <laughs> Go away. Leave us Go alone. Go away. Leave us alone. Please. Oh, you said please. Yeah. All right. So that was kind of uh, that was kind of terrible. Pee, at that point, you need to pick up a bone tomahawk, man. You need Take to pick out. up, yeah, get on that wishbone, man. Like like college football formations, man. Start running that wishbone. <laughs> Although running a wishbone with George might be difficult. He's he's a tall glass of water. Yeah, uh, he is. I think the the stuff with the attic I quite like too. When they get up into the attic, I think it's good. It's really claustrophobic. And George yeah. decides he's gonna <laughs> death yeah, from it, above. It's, it's weird. It's one of those attics too, where I feel like I've seen it in like. A few other Italian. Oh, Return of Living Dead does that, right? Yeah, yeah, but that attic in particular, I feel like I've seen in maybe a few other Italian films. Yeah, but I know was... the majority of the film was shot in Greece. I, don't, I would say some of the stuff might have been shot on like, a, well, I don't know, maybe it could have been in a house in Greece. I don't know. I'm sure they probably had a good time. Ooh, they sure did. They sure did. Um, but he picks her up by the hair and <laughs> get a pickaxe to the shin. Oh, can't feel good. It's a bad. Uh... Yeah, that is you. bad, man, because, you know, I mean, if you just bump your shin into a table, it's bad news. Ooh, you bump your shin going up the stairs. Oh, it's bad yeah, news. Can you imagine terrible. a pickaxe? Pickaxe through the shin. Ooh. Ooh, man, talk about pain. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's like a javelin to the taint. Oof. Yeah, that's... <laughs> Not that I would know any of that that's no. like, or the strange yeah. javelin I had in speaking. high school. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> tainted love. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the house looks really good i think they they don't get enough kind of exterior stuff with the house it looks pretty good and one thing i'll say about this disc is the features are quite lacking and i feel there's a there's a documentary they must just use as like a go-to documentary when they don't yeah, have the 42nd the 42nd, yeah, the 42nd street, street documentary one. baby yeah that's right um I don't know how – I don't want to – well, I don't really want to – I mean, I think start. it's nice that they give you that because it's a full-length film. Uh, and if you've never seen it, it's a good documentary. It's not great, but it's good. It's got a lot of nice footage of 42nd Street and a lot of great stories from some people, Bill Hustig and Roxanne Hart and people like that. But uh, I do wish it would have had some – you know, I wish I wish they could have got a hold of George and done an interview with him. You know, he's he's been did an interview. I was on hoping – that that would be the case. Yeah, he did an interview on one of the discs he had. Maybe it was maybe it was Terra Express he did an interview with him on. I'll say this, and I don't want to get into it too much, but I feel like we've really we've heard some things. Um, do we want to get into this? No. What eighty eight films? Uh, no, maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah, I just I will say this. They're, don't want to speak out of turn yet. Don't want to speak out of turn, but but we will say that their extras are lacking. I'll leave it yeah. at that. Yeah. Um, I think they they need to they do do some work there. I, I like what they're doing with the Italian collection. I just wish they do a little bit more. Yeah. On the extras side. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Unless we're going to consider Shaquille O'Neal uh, a leading man at seven foot one, I think that uh, yeah. six foot nine man's got uh, Georgie's got him. Everyone beat or Richard Kyle or someone, but so we need a buddy cop movie with George Eastman, and Shaquille O'Neal. Oh, that'd be amazing. Shot at the Parthenon. Yeah, yeah. In the club, man. <laughs> Skill and he'll be dancing. Yeah. George Eastman be looking, hey, what the fuck are you talking about? That's not a nightclub. Eastman's doing the head nod. <laughs> Amazing. George Murasan. Yeah, Will Chamberlain. There's not too many. These are all. Yeah. You know, but anyway, no one did it as regularly as Georgie. So anyway, those yeah, are my yeah, notes. There you go. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's get into the make or breaks and all that. All right. Uh, make or break. I think well, we're going to be similar on this. On the MVTs and make or breaks, we're probably going to be similar. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, the, the MVT, I could almost go. I could do that first. I could almost go with D'Amato, but this feels more like Eastman's baby. Because D'Amato's also responsible for the first two-thirds, so. Yeah, yeah. So. Which are okay, but. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I feel like Eastman had a great idea. That's what it feels like to me. And, and you know, he probably just said, hey, Joe. And Joe's like, hey, Luigi. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, boom, you know, we get a movie. Uh, the make or breaks, uh, so I'll go with Eastman on it because, uh, you know, he is the writer and the star. And really, if you're going to check out Anthropophagus, nine times out of ten, you're going to check it out because of George Eastman or Joe D'Amato. That, that, I really don't see, you know, th- there might be a few Tisa Farrow completists out there. And maybe a few <laughs> Zora Karova completists, you yeah. know, there might be some of those out there. So, but I feel like the draw here is Eastman and D'Amato, right? Absolutely. And of course, Italian gore, the scene, uh, the make or break scene. Well, I used to think it was the rather infamous scene. Matter of fact, that was easily, I even wrote that down before I started writing notes down. Because I thought to myself, you know, that, that's the scene everybody remembers. But really, I think it's the last, I think it's the last bit with George. That's the, that's the scene to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, not to get into too much detail, I mean, you got to wait 80-something minutes to get there, but it is a great scene. So, you know, I, I'll, I'll go with that. It involves gut much, and let's put it that way. My score is 6.75. Like nice. I said, it's, this is not a masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination, but it's, it's a fun little kind of look back into the archives of what uh, straight-to-video stuff was. Well, not straight-to-video, because that wasn't the case, but what video stores were pumping on their shelves to, to fill space at the time. You know, I saw a lot of these films because of that. So, yeah, and it's a nice walk down memory lane. Uh, you know, I, 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 I mean, it's not like I won't ever watch it again. I'll watch it again. One no, day. That's true. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm with you for sure. I like the location. I mean, the grease looks great on film. So oh, it looks great on film. Yeah. They had a lot of value out of that. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that always works. Yeah, oh, absolutely. This might have one of the longest walking around small town Greece scenes ever in the beginning, though. Totally. I mean, it takes them a long time to get to that beach. Oh, <laughs> it's quite the walk. <laughs> yeah. Serena did a good job. She was wise to roll her ankle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to deal with nonsense. Uh, my make or break the last third of this film, because the first two thirds are anonymous. When you're going to talk about this film, yeah, you're probably not going to talk about the beach stuff, the, the Greece. I mean, all that stuff's great, but... What are you going to talk about? We can talk about the last back half, the back end with Georgie. Mm-hmm. Rampaging, wide-eyed, he's going crazy. Yeah, once um, he shows up, and again, like we said, it was 51 minutes. I looked at the time. It was 51 minutes before he actually shows up. Mm-hmm. And once he shows up, it becomes a much more interesting movie. But you got to oh, go 51 man. minutes. That's a long time. you got to go 51 minutes to get there. And the problem is Tisa Farrow's fine, and the other female actresses are fine. And that, I, I should say that. I should I should qualify that because... I think all the females in the film are fine. I think the male yes. actors in this are like They're dreadful. And might be, bad. other than George, this might have the, the most dreadful collection of um, male actors. Yeah, I've seen those guys in other things, but none of them, I think, ever went on to anything big that I can think of. No. Uh, MVT Georgie. Oh, yeah. Georgie, man. Georgie, Georgie, Georgie Montefiore. Yeah, he brings it. And my score is a 6.5. You know, solid film. I think its reputation precedes it unfairly. Um, but you can do a lot worse, absolutely. Oh, well, you can a, definitely do worse with these two individuals. You can do worse with George Eastman and George, Joe D'Amato. You sure <laughs> Working can. together. Yeah, you sure can. <laughs> yeah. So those, uh, those are all my breaks. Oh, those are all my breaks. Those I'm are looking, all your breaks. Those are all my breaks. I'm looking at a, 
Jim Wynorski film called Christmas in Palm Springs. Ooh, but there's boobs in it. I, oddly, no. What? Ian Ziering, Patrick Muldoon, Dina Meyer, and someone named Bill Cobbs. Oh, so a different kind of boobs in this. <laughs> yeah, Fred Olin just, Ray. Just boobs. <laughs> chasing that Hallmark Christmas film money. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is Those amazing. Hallmark Christmas films, they. Patrick Muldoon's really, really going for it. He's holding up a snow globe and looking into it wistfully. Amazing. Nice. Oh, amazing. Okay. Oh, and he's on the. Oh, he's, he's hot licking on a guitar in a Santa suit later on. That's going to be. Oh, no, Patrick, Patrick Muldoon and Dina Meyer, didn't they do? They were in Starship Troopers together, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because yeah. she loses her arm, doesn't she? Uh, or is it her? It, yeah, I think it was her. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I forgot about that. Nice. Good pull, man. Yeah. Patrick Muldoon, he was hot for a minute. He was. See, then. Uh, <laughs> then he was gone. <laughs> then he was gone. Poof into the night. <laughs> didn't even have a career. Didn't even have the career longitude of a uh, what's his name? Uh, Andrew what's his name, son? Uh, uh, no, I was talking to think about the uh, Antonio Sabato Jr. Oh, even no. he's had a longer career. Sabato <laughs> Jr.'s had like a Borgnine esque run compared to him. Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. Let's uh, let's. Oh, my record. Yeah, I can't record this. Oof, I can breathe. <laughs> Ooh. That was that would have been rough. All right, we're gonna take a short break. We're going to come back with Zardoz. We will be right back. Hey, this is Scott of Married with Clickers. Tune in to hear my wife Kat and me discuss all sorts of movies. We'll cover everything from The Lost Weekend to Weekend at Bernie's. From The Big Sleep to Big Mama's House. Well, maybe not Big Mama's House. And the great thing about Kat is that she's not afraid to speak her mind. And would you be surprised to hear he was nominated for Best Actor that year? For that film? For that film. Oh. <laughs> but don't take my word for it. Just listen to what the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema has to say about our show. Oh, it's a husband and wife show, and they discuss movies and stuff. Yeah, a very wife-husband show. High praise indeed. So come find us at marriedwithclickers.libson.com. It will save your life. Or maybe just help you kill an hour. Thank you. 
about a film that's uh, another notorious film in, in a lot of ways, uh, or infamous, notorious. Um, it certainly has, has one of the most infamous images in the modern internet age. Oh, totally. Maybe something Sean Connery will never live down. That's right. Well, or never live up to again. Something, yeah, easily something Sean Connery will never live up to or live down. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Again, it's uh, yeah. Right. there's nothing quite like that costume. Yeah, oh, it's something else. I'll tell you, we should do one year. We should do that, all of us, or how and do that for a photo. Ooh, man. That could get that could get sweaty and nasty quick. Get nasty and hot. Yeah, especially for the females. I feel sorry for them. I can imagine Zom in it, though. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I'm sure Zom wears this kind of outfit yeah. all the time. Probably what he podcasts in. Well, I mean, don't. Outstanding. With those boots, I don't know, man. Those boots would get a bit cumbersome. Yeah, man, the boots would be hot. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they absolutely would be because those go I'm up not past a big, your knees. I'm not a big boot person anyway. I don't like the way you have to put them on, where you have to, you know, you almost have to do the ballerina toe to get them on to begin with, you know. You do, you do. To slide it in all that way into like this kind of slouchy suede, it's. I don't know. I don't know. Not to sound like a pig, but I'd be willing to wear the Zardoz costume if all the uh, female horror hound people would be willing to wear it. Because <laughs> that would be uh, that would be an interesting experience, all yeah. of us together. Or they can dress like uh, Rampling and you <laughs> yeah. Know, you well, that's revealing enough. Those costumes are revealing enough. Yeah, they are. They told totally, because <laughs> I don't want to be pulling a ponytail only to realize it's loaf. Yeah. You know. Well, you that you say you don't want to do that, but I I do want to do that. <laughs> That's right, I do want to be pulling a ponytail and only realize it's loaf. Loaf, he turns around. It was Ardas. <laughs> she was his floating head there by. I come to next time I come to Tiff, I'd have come dressed as Sean Connery and Zardoz. Do you think you get on the plane like that, you, or you think they would? How would that go? I don't know how that would go. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty positive they would search you. You probably have to put bubble gum in the bolero or whatever it is. You know, I, I think did I tell you that when I came back from uh, Toronto, they strip searched me. And cavity uh, search? Yeah, well, they didn't do a cavity search, but I, you know, I, I'm a typical, I'm a typically a go commando kind of guy. Ooh. You know, that's just that's just my that's just my thing there, baby. You know, that's just my thing. Uh, so you know, that was interesting when there was kids walking by and they asked me to kind of pull my pants down a little bit. Nice. Yeah, that was interesting. Ooh. So, yeah. Crossing that border. <laughs> What's it called? I called it a bolero. What's it called? The uh, the. I don't know. I call cross. it a pig in a blanket. It's nice, man. Yeah, exactly. Little snossage. <laughs> little pepperoni. <laughs> uh, What's it called? The bullet thing that you wear crisscross across your chest. I called it a bolero. Uh, bandolier, right? Bandolier, man. A bolero's like a cropped fucking woman's jacket. Yeah. Interesting. It's an interesting costume, to say the least. And, and this film, in some ways, too, almost feels like... This all comes from John Borman's brain, but this sometimes feels like like they came up with a costume, and they came up with a giant head, and then like... They, <laughs> and then they, they just work the rest in. Yeah. yeah, because we should say there is an interview with Borman on the disc, and I haven't listened to the commentary yet, but he says then the interview I did see, he said that, you know, Zardoz is what happens when you make a hit, and he's coming off Deliverance. 
and he had a big hit, and they kind of said, hey, you do what you want. And uh, this is what he decided to do. <laughs> this is when they say carte blanche, Mr. Borman. Talk, talk about, yeah, talk about a uh, switch. You know, I, I would arguably say Deliverance is one of the greatest films of the 70s. Yeah. And Zardoz is one of the greatest what the fucks of the 70s. Uh, and well, maybe of all time. <laughs> and that's saying something. <laughs> yeah. That is really saying something. Um. Yeah, Boorman, you know, a fascinating filmmaker who we've had on the show before. Yeah, a couple times, yeah. Yeah, we adore. Because um, he goes we adore for adore the Boorman. We do adore him. Uh, Exorcist 2, contrary to what most will say, I will defend to the day I die. Yeah, it is good. an unbelievable piece of cinema. You can take it, you can leave it, but you will not see anything like it. Just like Zardoz. <laughs> From the mind of John Boorman, the man who brought us deliverance. Yeah. <laughs> and point blank. And point blank, yes. <laughs> and Excalibur a few years later. Yeah. I haven't seen much of his later stuff. Uh, the Emerald Forest is interesting. And, Two nudes uh, bathing. What's that? Uh, Ooh, stars yeah. John Hurt and Charlie Berman. I'm out. Yeah, the general. The general's good. The general's good with uh, Dominic uh, Dominic uh, Gleason. Is that his name? Oh, Dom Hall Gleason. Oh, Brendan Gleason. No, no. Brendan Gleason. Brendan Gleason. No, Dominic. What the fuck am I thinking about? And John Voight, that's really good. We should cover that at some point. I think that's very up our alley. Oh, okay. He produced it. Who, oh, Boomer directed it and produced it. Okay. Yep. All right, cool, cool. Yeah, I'd be down for that, man. I'm a big fan of Voight. I think Voight uh, doesn't get enough love when you talk about great actors of the 60s and 70s. Yep. That's um, a good one. That's a real good one. Good crime film. Yeah, no, that'd be cool, man. That'd be very cool. Boomer's fascinating, though. Uh, we should say, yeah, we said this is a region B blue. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, let's talk about that. He wrote this. He directed it. He produced it. Um, let me just look. And I know uh, in reading some of the liner notes that he was really looking to get the rights to adapt Tolkien's uh, Rings books, which would have been a very interesting adaptation of the Rings. <laughs> and would it ever? But that fell through. So we got Zardoz, and. I mean, can you imagine? Like, let's talk about this because okay, Borman went from Deliverance to this. Connery came off Bond. He's doing this. Yeah. What a change of pace. Certainly. This I can't think of an equivalent where someone goes off the cliff the same way. I can think of Travolta doing Battlefield Earth shortly after Pulp Fiction. Which is, yeah, but he did some stuff in between there too that was okay, and some stuff that was shitty in there too. He's never been, he's never. One thing you can always say about Travolta, he's never been wise about his choices when it comes to films. He's oh. he occasionally hits a home run, and he'll ride that home run for a little while, but he always ends up falling back into some kind of muck. In a big way, and we should say that the only film that uh, Connery did in between Bond films and Zardoz was a film that we've also covered on the show with Higgins. Sidney Lumet directed, terribly underappreciated, minor masterpiece in my eyes, The Offense. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's a fucking good one, man. That is a good, good film. So high, high rating. How do you go from The Offense to Zardoz? Uh, no. I don't know. I don't know if he needed to. He was trying to get a house. I think, I think it sounds like we might be talking bad about Zardoz, but that's not the case. It's just no, one of those it's things where different, um, it's, it's so out there. There's really nothing like it. I mean, I can't think of anything like it. I, yeah, can I mean, you name any movie like Zardoz? The only thing I can think of, you know, when I watch it now, like I told you, I've seen it two or maybe two times before this. 
Oh, maybe, you know, some of Jodorowsky's stuff um, mm, yeah. in terms of ideas. But Jodorowsky somehow is more coherent um, and concise with some of his big ideas and ambitions. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's a lot being said in this film that is coherent, but there's some stuff that I just I can't quite piece together. And I'm OK with that. Yeah. Because I think when you like you spoke about with uh, Orion there. And how that's sort of endlessly fascinating. It's also endlessly fascinating to see a director go down with the ship in spectacular fashion in the public's eyes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The way Boorman has not once but twice. Like you and I laughed about this, but how is it after Zardoz, the studio said, we're going to give you carte blanche, do Exorcist 2. <laughs> how does that happen? Yeah, yeah. I think on Exodus 2, though, didn't he come? I think, didn't he come in to save it, or was he originally attached? It seemed like somebody else was originally attached to it, and he ended up doing it because somebody else I don't know. fell through. I can't remember. I can't remember, but we talked about. I have about, to go back and listen to our Exodus show to know that, but. Yeah, right, right. Now, we could talk about. I mean, we talk about, we talk about this film all night, really. Um, and, you know, the, the average kind of um, meat and potatoes kind of masses. Movies for the masses crowd may think this film is dog shit. And I would say they're crazy because I think this is a film that I love, uh, a film that I'm thrilled to own, mm-hmm. and a film that, say what you will about it, but like you said, you're not going to see too much like this. And no. they may not stick the landing on very many things in the film as far as ideas, but it's the ambition with which he swings for the fences that I will find admirable endlessly. Every now and then, filmmakers and studios and all have a lapse in judgment. Yeah, and you got to take advantage of that, of that lapse. <laughs> you have to take advantage of This is one of those moments. This is like Caligula or... Big time, yeah. Or Heaven's Gate, or, which actually is a better film than most people think it is. But, uh, but this happens all the time. I mean, this still happens to this day. Mm-hmm. Every now and then, there's a lapse in, in, in judgment by a studio and what's, what's going to be a hit. Or what's going to work, and they give carte blanche to some visionary, quote-unquote, director. Visionary director, yeah. And this happens. I can't think of what it was recently, but we've talked about it before. There's There's been stuff recently this has happened with. But, you know, I, I, I'm sure we could come up with stuff. I'm not going to worry about it right now. But this happens all the time, and it will continue to happen because the truth of the matter is, sometimes when, when that stuff hits, it's massive. Oh, yeah, it's, because it changes things completely, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if, this, if Zardoz would have been a gigantic box office hit, we'd have had a ton of Zardoz ripoffs. So you can imagine. Oh, I wish. I w- <laughs> Again, imagine George Eastman in this. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. That, 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 we would have had. Actually, Ed, he would have fit right in. We would have had Roselle Benary in the Charlotte Rampling role. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, Gimzer. Gemser or uh, Edvige Fennick or Barbara Boucher. I mean, come on. Or if it was up to Eastman, it could have been the lead from Warriors in the Wasteland. Yeah, it could have been that dude. He's got the skunk stripe <laughs> yeah. in his hair. Didn't he have a skunk stripe in his hair? <laughs> yeah, I think he, well, he may have. I can't, I can't Eastman recall. gave him a skunk stripe, all right, man. <laughs> yeah, he did. Right up the spine there, mate. Right the <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the old lawn darts, man. Um, I got to mute you for a second while you talk. So. Yeah, of course. Good. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, well, you know, one thing I want to give credit to with this, uh, there's a lot of things I want to give credit to, frankly, but, uh, the film was shot for a million dollars. 
a million dollars, and I don't know. Oh, okay, a million and a half, it says here. Uh, I want to see what that converts to in 1974. $1.5 in 1974. Oh, i got to find an inflation calculator. Okay, so let's take a look here. I'm going to U.S. inflation calculator. If in 19, we'll say 73, since it came out in 74, I purchased an item for one five zero zero zero. Then in 2015, the same item would cost $8 million. So that's, uh, that's not much. I mean, considering the film, like you figure if this film nowadays was made for $8 million, there's a lot in this film. And I know that, um, let's see, Barrymore, Boorman, I think he decided to forego his paycheck for this film because he really wanted to get it made. They shot it in his backyard. It was shot in Ireland. I thought it would be shot in either Scotland or Ireland or maybe New Zealand or somewhere because it just, the way it looked. Was it Ireland? I thought it was Scotland. No, it was Ireland. Okay. It was Ireland. Um, now, I had never known how they had done the floating head thing. Do you know how they did it? No, I didn't. I did I'll, not. I'll tell you how. How, how would you guess? Because I'll be honest, I wouldn't have had a clue how they did it. Uh, unless I saw this credit in the film. Uh, underwater, maybe? Good guess. I'll tell you. They, I saw a credit in the film that said, Inflatables by Air Structure Designs England. Ooh. So I think it was like a really well-designed hot air balloon. Or inflatable. Nice. Really intricate. Well, that designed. makes sense. I mean, the opening of this film is special. I mean, it really is. It's you get that whole kind of prelude uh, and all that stuff. You get the guns coming out, spitting out the bullets. It almost looks like all like a bunch of hypodermic needles. Coming it is up. an amazing opening. And then it goes to the credits and the heads floating around. So that means that there was a full size head at some point. Yeah. Floating around Irish mountaintops. Imagine that. You're a farmer and you see that floating around. I'd love to own one of those. Oh my god. If, if I'm if I'm a guy that owns a party a party thing for inflatables, the bouncy houses for kids. Make I it design the Zardoz one. Yeah. I'd be amazing. It'd spit out bubble guns or something. Oh my god. For the dedicated movie movie buff in your family for the kid's birthday, you know, the Zardoz Bounty House. That'd be amazing. <laughs> amazing. I think that's how it was. I know I did see that credit, Inflatables by Air Structure Designs England, because I always thought, man, how did they pull this off? I mean, it's a big, yeah. it's a big floating device. Yeah. Um, and how about the opening credits with uh, that floating head screensaver? It was like the, yeah, it's great. It's great because when your TV is nothing's on except the black screen, but your TV's on, that's exactly how the screensaver moves. I know. <laughs> great. That's I want. Crazy. I want a Zardoz screensaver, man. I really do. It'd be awesome. Um, I do want the belt from this, like the belt buckle. It'd be pretty cool. Oh yeah, that's a great belt buckle. Yeah, yeah absolutely. 
Um, my belt buckle game's been lacking, I think, since I've become a parent, though. I used to be more fixated on ornate belt buckles, but <laughs> sadly, not anymore. Uh, okay. I used to be... I used to be more fixated on questionable inflatables. But yeah. I have to become a parent as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Man. Uh, hey, how about um, speaking of uh, youth, the actual Zardoz title credit doesn't it look like an amazing metal band logo font? Oh hell yes! Oh yes! As a as a as a, <laughs> as a gentleman that grew up during the heyday of the uh, you know those Judas Priest records and Man of War and all those bands that I love so much in my youth, I still love today. Um, it's, it's a great design. It looks like something, uh, yeah, it looks like something straight out of uh, early 80s uh, or maybe mid-70s to late early 80s heavy metal album covers. It's awesome. It is. Now, I wonder if anyone was influenced by this. Like, oh. someone had to have been, right? Because this was someone. like, you know, yeah. absolutely. No doubt. Some, I bet some bands loved it. I bet... Uh, I bet you know there's. I, I'm well. I mean, I, we know it has a cult following. It's definitely a cult film. So, uh, for for the wrong and for the right reasons, I think it's you know, it's a ludicrous movie, but it's also got a message. So it's also a sensible film. Although I did tell you that watching it this time, it did feel more heavy-handed in its message than I remember it yes. being. Yes, I it mean, does I, get psychobabbly, new age, heavy-handed. Yeah, yeah, it gets quite preachy. I mean, if you're not in the mood. For a preachy movie, then you might want to wait and watch this because, as much fun as the set design and the costumes are, and all that stuff, the the, the kind of thrust of the film, no no pun intended, yeah, can be can be a little uh, yeah, a little like okay, I get it, okay, I get it, <laughs> yeah, very much so, very much so. Um, One of my favorite scenes in this movie is the scene where. Uh, I don't know if we should speak about it now. Like, I guess we speak. I, I, we, we talked about the floating head. We talked about the the whole. The opening's great because he ends up in the head. He ends up shooting. Oh, Zardoz. it's amazing. Yeah. And then he ends up in this kind of like peaceful, like almost like a uh, world, like uh, in Time Machine, in the Time Machine film where everything is good. Everything, life is good. Everything is great. Everybody's got pretty hair. Nobody has any body hair. I think that's something I noticed this time. Everybody is hairless except for Sean Connery. Oh, I never noticed that. Yeah, he's like a, he's like an animal. He is. Except he is. Normal people, you know. It's funny. He's kind of got like a yeah. beast look. And it's funny how this really feels like um, a much more kind of uh, hallucinogenic drug philosophical version of Planet of the Apes in that way. Yes. And yeah. I like all that stuff because it's kind of like the audience perspective. Yeah. And then it gets to one of my favorite scenes in the film, which is the scene where they try to make Sean Connery have an erection. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> it is. I love it, man. Yeah, it's really good. Um, you know who I, I have to think is a huge fan of this, especially after I'd seen A Field in England, is Ben Wheatley. Yeah, I can see that. I can, I can totally, totally see that because I think on the disc, even once I'd noticed that, I saw afterwards that there was some Ben Wheatley thing on here. But it makes sense. Ben Wheatley's from the UK. Yeah, I've never seen. I still haven't seen Phil in England, but from what I didn't I know care of it, for it too much. But it yeah. it's. But I, I think Ben Wheatley is someone I'll, I'll watch everything he does straight away because I think he's a fascinating filmmaker. He's right. like a Boorman. I mean, he takes fucking chances. Yeah, big time. <laughs> you know. Um, 
the okay, so of course the gun is good, the penis is evil. Um yeah. the iconic line. Um which is great. Uh I want to make sure I, I want to plug this while we're at it cuz we we plug our friends shows. We don't do the thing at the end anymore, the roll call or anything else, but I want to plug this while I'm remembering it. But I want to direct you guys that listen to our show to check out Silver and Gold's review of this as well. Because it's both funny and very informative, and they get into a lot of the the penis and gun debate. And in an informative and funny way, and probably in a better way than we're going to, because unfortunately we're, we're probably both been up for 20 hours apiece. Yep. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, not to say that our show is lacking. I certainly hope our show is funny and you guys have a blast listening to it. But check those guys yeah, out. Yeah, and while you're at it, again, we'd love to get back into the roll call. But check out Good Movies for Bad People. Two good friends of ours. Uh, yeah, yeah. That are doing a doing a little ting. Another Can Am connection, man. They're right. uh, good guys, good fellas over there, Jacob and Christian. They're actually reviewing uh, Final Score, released by a handsome trifecta of gentlemen uh, right. from Holland, America, and Canada. So, all right, I'm gonna let you speak again. I got to mute again for a second. So, yeah, sorry, cool. guys. <laughs> that's all good. So. This film, uh, I meant to look into the DOP because I know he was young at the time and he added a lot of, uh, in my eyes, a lot of production value. Uh, I love that one of the frequently asked questions for this, I don't, under- I don't understand this movie. What is it about? I want to see what the answer was now. <laughs> see what motherfucker answers. Oof, man, lots of paragraphs. Okay, I'm out. Um, I want to look at the DOP that did this because I feel like uh, he really does a great job with this. It's edited well and it's shot well. Um, Where are we here? So, cinematography by Jeffrey Unsworth. Wow. Jeffrey Unsworth, one of the great cinematographers of the 20th century, winner of two Oscars, five BAFTA awards, and three awards from the British Society of Cinematographers. Holy cow. He had shot uh, 2001, Superman Films for Donner, Cabaret, Tess. Um, Wow. Okay, so he's... Yeah, okay. I mean, that's it, right? Ooh, we shot Genghis Khan for for John Wayne, I think. Oh, Did he really? Omar, yeah. Sorry, it's the Omar Sharif jam of the Omar Sharif Genghis Khan. But wow. uh, nonetheless, what an accomplished uh, DOP. I thought it looked good, but he shot 2001, which is one of the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate films. Yeah, indeed. Uh, so... How about uh, there's a great credit in this film too for a horse master. <laughs> I see too many horse master credits nowadays. Um, I really That's feel the zombie horror hound credit. Totally is man, totally is. I feel like uh, the film opens and when you you know when you first start watching it, you think it's very much commentary on well, it's commentary on a lot of things. You know, oppression of religion, cultures, classes, war machine, on and on and on and on. A lot of things that could be discussed by more intellectual people than us. But you first think it's going to be very much a European, especially the the year and the time that it came out, 
Um, you know, you're talking about 74. When did Vietnam end? 76? Oh, man, don't call me to the carpet on that. <laughs> 77, maybe. But I don't know. Uh, I, yeah, first you think, oh, okay, here we go. It's going to be a European critique of uh, Vietnam and, and so forth. But I think what you see ultimately is Boorman is more interested in I know he's always been a guy that's been very sort of anthropological in his interests, um, or there's been an interest of his. I feel like he is fascinated with how societies evolve and crumble, and we see the hypocrisy and the abuse of power with both kind of trains of thought uh, or ways to govern, as it were. Yes, um, so that that is something that I, I take away from this uh, when I'm looking at it as a more the uh, age old debate in all of mankind will always be there is no completely right nor completely wrong way. That's right. Uh, that's that's the that, that that I mean that's the thing that we'll be fighting about until the until the end of mankind. Yeah, it'll never end. It'll never end. And unfortunately, that divide seems to be. We're not a political show. We won't be. But that divide seems to be going wider and wider. Yes. Um, with each coming uh, coming year, I feel generation, it each generation to, it seems to get seems wider. To change a little bit more, yeah. It does. Um, I feel like Borman takes a page out of the Mario Bava Planet of the Vampires plastic wrap notebook. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you just, it's, it's, I, I gotta say though, man, some of them ladies in that plastic wrap are hot, man. They looked good, and it was a good look, though. I mean, it was a good look. It looked good. And even the design inside the skull, I wonder if that was him kind of commenting on, um, like, the killing fields and, you know, Cambodia, the way the skulls were all stacked and everything. Oh, yeah. It's a I'd have to say guy. it is. Yeah, I'd have to say it is because of what he's going for for this movie. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's what I got. And, again, a very Jodorowsky notion at this point. Um, I would have – I'd love to see this on the big screen, I should say. I've never yeah, seen it'd be great with it. It'd be great with a crowd. Yeah, I just got, you know, I've got the DVD now. I got the Blu-ray now. Um, but I've never seen it on a big screen. It would be great with a crowd. I would have loved to have seen this in my hallucinogenic heyday too. <laughs> oh boy. Um this, you know, speaking of that, this falls into that kind of 70s sci-fi kind of I was I think I was talking to you about this the other night how I found it fascinating how drug culture has really seeped into hip hop culture. And yeah. hallucinogens and uh, chemicals like ecstasy and you know GHB and stuff, how they've all seeped into hip hop culture and expanded that universe. I feel like hallucinogenic drugs um, and MDMA and things like that really expanded science fiction in the '70s as well. Yeah. Stuff like Logan's Run, Silent Running, this—they're all very sort of uh, hippy dippy. I don't want to say hippie. I don't want to dismiss them because I tend to be a little more left-leaning than than uh, than average. But I feel like there is very much a a counterculture uh, vibe to these films, and science fiction and the drug culture melding together was uh, it created some really great work in the era. Yeah, yeah. Production designs first rate. Um, again, I think with Borman being kind of a world-class guy, world traveler, how his son is, um, I feel like with the, what do they call them, the Brutals? That's what they call them, right? Yeah. Okay, I feel like yeah. the Brutals are commentary on sort of child soldiers around the world. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I got that same thing, man. I got that same thing. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, and how about keep them t- uneducated? Keep them, yes. you know, keep them uh, stuck to the directive. You know, do do the deed. Yep. Reward them with guns. Absolutely. And I feel like too, you know, he really. It's funny to see some of the stuff that influenced this. Some of the, the writing like Orwell and stuff like that. Because I think he even references Orwell, doesn't he, in the um, the tagline? line. But beyond 1984, beyond 2001, beyond love, beyond death, there is Ardaz. But uh, I really got to go listen to that Sylvain Gold review. I'm licking my chops. I can't believe I haven't heard that before. That's going to be amazing. Um, but uh, I feel like you look at. Where's I even going with this now? When you look at. Um, that influence and then you look at stuff you could even say like when you look at things like um from a few years ago the kim ji-woon film um or no bong bong jin-ho film um snowpiercer oh yeah you know you look at the class system and the divide and all these things i mean it's kind of you see this through line with all these films you know it's fascinating to me um neck Oh, I think, too, the oversaturation of violent imagery. Again, our news was uh, heavily saturated with a lot of horrific images from Vietnam and war. And in a ratings chase, people wanted to, well, some stuff for for journalistic merit uh, was shown, show people the truth. But other things were shown for the interest of selling papers, so to speak. And I think there's a line in here that says, no, no, don't look at these images. These images will pollute us. Yeah. It's commentary on that, right? Um, and how about this? This is just like my old man uncomfortable note for the review. That moment when when Connery's dangling his neck over that like slab that he's laying on when they're processing him. He's lying like that for a while. And I couldn't help but think like, man, my neck would hurt so much if I had to lay like that. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> I was thinking that, and I was man. thinking, man, my lower back would hurt so bad. Oh, would it ever? Give me a pillow. Give me, a, like, a, a memory foam mattress or something. Jeez. Yeah. Unbelievable. <laughs> um, I thought that interrogation room with the temple and the, the frozen bodies and the projector and stuff, it looked really good. Like, I was saying when you were gone, the budget for this was a million and a half, which equates to $8 million in today's dollars. A fantastic job. I know he had his family working on it. His kids were in it. His wife designed the costumes. They shot it in his backyard, basically. Um, it, it really they get they really squeeze value out of the dollar. And and mm-hmm. fra- uh, Connery was still commanding two hundred grand at the time. So like a big chunk of the budget went to Connery. Yeah. Now, did you know? And I only read this from the liner notes. Do you know who Broman's first choice was to play Zed? I do not. It was Bert. Really? Yeah, Bert was his first choice, but Bert got sick. Wow. So that would have been a different movie. I think it, as much as I love Bert, I think it works better with Connery. I think it does too. I think Connery's more, and I don't mean this in a bad way because I think Bert's very macho, but there's something a little bit more manly about Connery. For there's some something reason. more brutish and yeah. blunt force about um, about Connery. Who do you think is a better actor? Ooh. Um. Oh man, I think I think Connery's a better actor. I think Bert's a better movie star. Does that make sense? 
It makes total sense, and I would agree with you. I would agree. Bert has something that you can't explain. Uh, it's just a uh, charisma. Um, I mean, it's just something you can't explain. Connery, if you look past the Bond stuff and some of the other stuff, the guy can. The guy's actually been in some really good movies. And he's a good actor. He's a legit good actor. Yeah, because wasn't there talk? And I think even you know, I mentioned this ironically. Wasn't there talk of Bert when he was at his height becoming Bond? Oh, I'm sure there was. Which is so ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, they always want to put the hot, you know, the hot ticket at the time. I mean, Craig was a bit of a risk, but, I mean, all the other ones, if you look back, I mean, most of them are, you know, hot tickets at the time that they take on the role. Yep. Yep, no, exactly. Um... I think the makeup's pretty good in this. Like, there's a moment, for lack of a better description, and I don't mean it to sound callous, but the guy that gets exiled um, when he's aged and he's made sick, it looks almost like he had a a stroke or something. One side of his face has been impacted. Like, that makeup yeah. holds up well, even under the scrutiny of Blu-ray. It does. It looked good. It looks really good. Um, I feel like this film looks tremendous on Blu-ray. Like, it's a really good job by Arrow, as always. Yeah, they I liked it as really well. Really good job. It- because it's kind of a, it, it starts out very drab. Yep. And then it gets to this kind of colorful other world, and it looks really, really nice. It looks great, man. It's a fantastic release from them. Mm-hmm. Lots of special features. I mean, it really does a good job. What else is good is that there's a there's a lot of jazz hands in this film. Like when they're whenever they're debating something or they're they're taking a vote, there's a lot of elaborate jazz hands being done to decide which way you're voting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, That's true. Which I like. Uh, what does it say? Boxer Black. Oh, Boner Blackboard. The Boner Blackboard, yeah. which you talked about, which is amazing. Yeah. It is amazing. But I like how she goes, hmm, it seems like she prefer, he prefers you. That's right. Lush. Connery's like, ooh. 74 was a good year for Charlotte Rampling. She did this and the Night Porter. Yeah. What a year. Uh... If you She's ever, still doing good work. She's still a good actress. She is a fine actress. She's not my type, uh, no. but I don't need every actress to be my type. I think she's a tremendous yeah. actress, though. Um, really does great work. Really great work. Ahead of her time. Uh, I mean, mature Bob beyond her years back then. Yep. Um, if you ever wanted to see Sean Connery threaten seniors with a crutch, then this is your <laughs> film. Man, he go. Yeah. He just wants to really beat him down. Um, I love the library flashbacks. I think they're great. They look good. Um, Rampling is foolish enough to get into a tug of war with Connery, in a literal sense, which just bad move. Unless you're planning on doing that trick where you hold it and then you let go when he's really giving it. Knock him on his ass. Um, like his ass, yeah. What else do we got here? As ridiculous as this sounds, and this is where you need a good actor in your lead performance and, and good direction. The scene when Sean Connery's talking to the talking diamond is really good. Yeah, it is. It's really good. He's inside that tabernacle. <laughs> and uh, we get some reverse photography and stuff. And I think, the, I think the film also looks very much at careful what you wish for and you can never go back. Um, and a lot of people compared the finale of this to Peckinpah and they said that, that Boorman was a misogynist and 
I, I don't I don't get that, but I'm a man. Um, I think that they establish that Connery is a fucking brutal animal in a lot of ways. And if anything, I would think that Borman Borman's sentiment is a little more liberal than a lot of men of his time. But, you know, yeah, I mean, he's a savage among, quote unquote, you know, acceptable social norms. So but polite society wasn't all that polite. Correct. There's, it never is. No, no it's uh, it's atrocious. And there's critique of that, which I love, which is when you realize the film is more. It's not as just heavy handed. OK, we get it. You know, yeah. uh, it, well, that is a very that is a very English thing anyway. The class system. Oh, big time. Yeah, they love to, they really go to that a lot because it's a big deal over there. Like in America, and I'm pretty sure in Canada, a class system, I mean, there is a class system, but we never talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't, it's just never discussed. That's right. That's right, exactly. Uh, those are my notes. I don't have a whole lot more to add. I mean, I, I like, the set design is wonderful. It's one of my favorite things about the movie. It always has been. The costumes, although ludicrous at times, uh, they really work in building this kind of crazy, wacky, like you said, hallucinogenic world that, you know, it just, I don't know, man, it just comes out of some kind of fevered imagination. It's so insane. <laughs> it's just, it's just one of those movies where you watch it and you're like, okay, I, I know I watched something. Um, yeah. It's not bonkers in like that funny way, like a Miami Connection or you know college kickboxer or something like that. It's, but it's but it is bonkers in that you know it's addressing serious social you know taboos and issues with this kind of this you know wacky look mm-hmm. uh, because the look is wacky. I mean, it's. I wonder it's what the there. what the the reason or logic, and maybe on the disc because there's that Boorman commentary, and I'd love to hear it. But what the motivation was for having them dress that way? I don't know. I guess the savages. I guess it would just be because maybe they wouldn't. You know, they wouldn't. The less clothes they wear, the less clean they would have to be. I guess maybe I don't know. That's just me thinking but, like the pig I am. <laughs> yeah, but they got. He's wearing the, all of the 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 brutals are wearing Rick James boots from like the street signs throwing down era. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they are. Those boots, those boots don't come cheap, man. I hope Zardoz is kicking out lots of those with the guns and the and the bullets. Well, the Rick James boot budget uh, was high. Beyond Connery, well, that might have. It might have been a deleted scene. They were kicking out Rick James albums. Oh man! Out of the mouth. Spitting them out of the mouth. Yeah. That makes sense. Maybe uh, I don't know. Yeah. What? Anything else you got to add there? I don't really have anything else. I like Connery a lot in the film. I like Rampling a lot. Some of the actors, other uh, actors and stuff, I could, I could take or leave. They could put anybody in there, but it's, you know, Rampling and Connery kind of carry the whole thing, and it's Foreman's kind of mad vision that makes it work. I don't think it's a masterpiece by any stretch, but I do think it's one of the more interesting films you'll ever have a chance to watch if you've never seen it. I think this would make a fascinating listen uh, as well on the feminine critique. Yeah. I mean, I just agree. a fascinating listen. Yeah. yeah, because it does feel it does feel very much like a, ma- a male perspective film, um, with some female elements in there. So I'd like to hear a female perspective on this thing. Oh yeah, absolutely. 
I think that would, uh, yeah, it would be very interesting to see if in our, if, yeah, if our interpretation is way different from theirs and they perceive it as more favorable or looking favorably on this kind of uh, Harry Macho bullshit. <laughs> if they feel that Berman perceives it that way, his might is right, which I don't think he does, but, you know, difference, different interpretation. It's a kind of film that lends itself to being um, assessed. Uh, exactly. So I'm going to get, get into make or breaks and MVTs and whatnot. Um, my make or break scene is the scene when he's talking to the diamond. I really like that scene. I, I don't know. I could go so much. The opening is so strong for this. I think I'm going to go with the opening because the opening really sets the table. Yeah. And what a table it sets. Uh, <laughs> it's really, it's it's something. And I think, I, I you know, Rampling's great. Production design's great. Connery's great. Uh, but I got to go with Boorman. I mean, this is Boorman's baby. He wrote it. He produced it. He directed it. His family all worked on it. Um, his one daughter's cute, actually, that's in this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm going to go with Borman. I, I just, I think he's an endlessly fascinating filmmaker. Um, and my score is a 7.5. I don't think it's a masterpiece. I think it's a very good film, and it's an interesting film that, as we'd said, uh, there's a lot of interesting discussion that can come from it. Yeah. Well, we're pretty close to the same page. Uh, my make or break was also the opening. I think it's great. And I mean, my, my, when I say the opening, I mean almost all the way until they get to where they start interrogating, where the uh, social kind of upper class starts to interrogate him. Mean, I love it when he's kind of walking around looking at stuff, kind of like with childlike wonder and stuff. It's really good acting by Connery. I think it's underrated. I agree. Um, my MVT is also Borman because this this feels like a film that comes from one person's imagination and. And it doesn't feel like, I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of uh, collaboration on a lot of the stuff, but man, it really feels like it comes straight out of Borman's brain. And I do, I also, I'm with you, I find him endlessly fascinating as, as a filmmaker and an interview subject and all that stuff. He's an interesting, interesting fellow. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, my score's a little lower than yours, and I think that's because I told you on this watch, I felt like I was getting browbeaten a little bit, and uh, I started to get, I wasn't tired or anything, I was really into the film, but I started to feel like the message was just so heavy handed. I was like, you know, you don't, I mean, you, you've, you've hit me over the head with it. You don't have to keep hitting me over the head with it. That's right. And it started to, it kind of started to take away from it for me a little bit. So I give it a seven out of 10. Oh, that's very fair. Yeah. I like it. I probably, if you, if we probably would have reviewed it 10 years ago, I probably would have given it maybe almost an eight. Yep. But I think on a rewatch this time, I felt like I was getting browbeat a little much. And, and uh, also I felt like there was some, I feel like whenever Connery or Rampling aren't on screen, which isn't a whole lot, it's pretty flat. Yeah, it's pretty flat. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Yeah. I feel like they could have done some, you know, Connery being one of the uh, the brutals is fine, but I feel like they could I feel like they could have used like another couple of really charismatic brutals and a couple more really charismatic kind of upper class. Oh yeah, they totally could have. It made it a little bit more interesting. I feel like everybody else is kind of background fodder for two kind of like amazing actors. Yeah, I don't really think that... Even the other female lead, I don't think she's all that. She's okay. Yeah, she's fine. But she's not... She's not super memorable, except for being kind of a bitch. She has, uh, you know, some interesting scenes that I think are made interesting 
because of the context of the scene more than her ability as an actress. Yes. So, yeah, no, I'm with you, man. I'm with you. Okay, cool. So that is the big show. We are going to refrain, I think, from talking about what we're doing next week. Uh, we should be having a couple of Toys for Tots episodes or show movies with some friends, but uh, that's all sort of schedule pending because who's going to be guest starring with us? Um, yeah, it's going to see. We're going to have to time it out and talk to some friends and and see uh, what their schedule is. Uh, yeah, have to come as back. you guys would imagine, it'll be a scheduling nightmare. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That old nut. So yeah, yeah, that old Zardoz. That old Zardoz. <laughs> so yeah, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. But yeah, um, otherwise, anything else I'm forgetting here or? No, just want to thank Diabolic DVD again. Thank Jesse and the boys over there, and can't wait to check out their first release. Man, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, now, did you see what I picked for next month? I did. It'd be fun. Excited. I was worried we had covered that one before in that genre that we tend to love, but I don't think we have. No, we haven't. We've talked about it often, though. Yeah. Yeah, we have. So, okay, cool. Well, I guess... I just just posted a picture of it recently on your birthday. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's going to be fun. going to be fun. And the other one's a lot of fun. (laughs) Yeah. Fucking bonkers. It's got one of the great covers that my kids will never get to see. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's the way it goes. But uh, all right, so we are going to take a break uh, for a week and uh, come back shortly. So with that, there is one thing left to say. Adios. Zardoz. Yeah. Adios. (laughs) Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com and you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com.